This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Happy Monday to you. You're at it again. Hope you're having a great day as you uh, make your commute back or just, you know, trying to get caught up after the weekend. We've got a great show for you today. Today we're going to be talking about if how to improve your influence with others and why using logic alone may not be cutting it. You might need to actually involve emotional communication as well as just logic. Try all you want. But at some point, uh, we're emotional beings, and today we're going to be talking with an expert and an author about uh, the power of using uh, kind of a mix of more emotional communication and logic uh, to help you uh, create more influence with others. We'll get to that as we as we get into this. Plus, of course, a lot of uh, local inform or not local, but national information and and uh, news headlines with Terry South. Uh, also, we're going to have a lot of empty news. In fact, we have our own Shik Shumway live on the scene of a of a crime that um, he he got there early. One of our goals of the show is to be first on the scene, and if we can, you know, in the top five in the facts, he is fast. He's a fast. You got to give him that. Yeah. So he got to the scene of a of I don't know what we want to call it, like a it's a theft. It's a theft of sorts. Yeah. Yeah, and but it's kind of an ironic theft. Yeah, yeah, and it was all you know. We we've got a great interview with Shick coming up. He, he's he, he's really a talented talented man. Shick Shumway coming up. Also, we'll be talking with uh, not talking with, but talking about the mayor of a town in Kentucky, a small 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 town in Kentucky. The mayor is a dog. I think there are only small towns in Kentucky. Yeah, maybe that, they're that, all small. That that might be, that might be it. Uh, this uh, the 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 town is called Rabbit Hash, Kentucky. By hmm. the way, you always love Rabbit Hash in the morning. Rabbit Hash, who hash? Mm. Hashtag, good stuff. So we'll talk about uh, the the winning mayoral candidate, a dog. Um, also today, by the way, is Don't Step on a Bee Day. <laughs> How many times have you stepped on a bee and you thought, ah, I shouldn't have done that? It's a very common thing. I don't think I've ever stepped on a bee. Have you? Terry has. I'm I sure. stepped on a hornet, but he was pretty much on his way out anyway. So so he, you were just helping him? Yeah. Did it sting you? No. It was more of, you know, I initiated a chemical attack and I just finished the situation off. Wow. Yeah. You're like a hit man. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> don't need your hornet's nest on my deck. So do I'll do take we it down. do we need do we need a don't step on a bee day? I mean, it's good advice. Yeah, it is because there's so many bees that are dying; they're dwindling. Yes. Well, and I think some people, if they don't know that there is a don't step on a bee day, they're just going to do it. Yeah. So they need to be told. Right. I, I plus, you don't need to step on them. It's it's going to make it harder for us to produce fruit. Hmm. And honey, I guess. We but, could also back off on some pesticides. If they ever figure that out, which one it is, because that's think, probably what it is. Is it the pesticides, or is it just so many people out there stepping on them? It's probably pesticides. Yeah, I'm going with that. They pretty much try to stay away from humans. Granted, there's some humans that try to, you know, keep them in their backyard. Yeah. 
Hey, I got a, I got another little bit of advice for anybody getting married. Ooh. Because we're big into like helping people any way we can. Sure. So let's say you're getting married and you're a bride and you mm. can't. You're getting married and you're a bride and you can't. Let's say that. I just did. Uh, so if you're getting married and you're a bride and you can't afford your dress, you know one way to pay for it? Uh, what is that? Uh, what's that service that you can take to social media? People can donate money. What is that called? GoFundMe. GoFundMe, yeah. Go yeah. You can do a GoFundMe account. Or you could just get a lot of bridesmaids and ask them to pay for your dress. Ooh. We'll talk about one story where that happened. And Seems like a social contract has been violated there. Yeah, totally, totally. And then um, uh, a man charged with breaking into 12 homes that were ter- tented off for termiting. Termite uh, hmm. bombs or whatever they're called. You probably ones. watched a similar show uh-huh. that I saw it yeah, on, too. Yeah, I so. think I saw hmm. that idea there, too. wonder what that show was. Hmm. Kind of weird. Uh, rhymes with Blaking Blad. No. It's just interesting how things starring, on TV work. Starring Robert Blake. <laughs> Robert Blake. Break and break and blad. Uh, we got all that straight ahead. But uh, first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? After three defendants fatally overdosed in a single week last year, it became clear that Buffalo, New York's ordinary drug treatment court was no match for the heroin and painkiller crisis. Now the city is experimenting with the nation's first opioid crisis intervention court, which can get users into treatment within hours of their arrest instead of days, requires them to check in with the judge every day for a month instead of for just one week, and puts them on a strict curfew. Cool. Administering justice takes a backseat to the overreaching goal of simply keeping defendants alive. Where is that? Buffalo, New York. Great job. Funded with a three-year, $300,000 U.S. Justice Department grant, the program began May 1st with the intent on treating 200 people in a year, improving a model that other heroin-racked cities can replicate. Two months in, the organizers are optimistic. As of last week, none of the 80 people who agreed to be part of the program overdosed, though about 10 warrants have been issued for missed appearances in court. Oh, boy. That's but great news, though. That's a you can't just arrest them, arrest them for drugs and throw them in, in jail. They're going to overdose and have problems. If you speed up the process and get them help... There you go. You can kind of curb the problem. We'll see if that works. Using our heads. The Newspaper Media Alliance, a new a newspaper trade group that represents over 2,000 newspapers in the U.S., is asking Congress for an antitrust safe harbor against Google and Facebook. David Chavern, the CEO of the president, uh, CEO and president of the alliance, the group will, with support from members like the New York Times, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal, argue that existing media competition laws prevent news organizations from working together to negotiate better deals with major internet platforms, unintentionally enabling Google and Facebook to continue to control the digital advertising ecosystem and information economy. Mm. Basically, there are certain rules, and Google and Facebook get to collect all the money because of these rules. Let's change the rules. That's how you work it. When in doubt, change the rules. Now, you get into the numbers here, and you say, uh, uh, so they keep calling Google and Facebook a duopoly. Okay, right? So yeah. it's a, not a monopoly, but both yeah. of them together. And it says uh, in the U.S., regulators have largely ignored this issue that they both control so much of the advertising. And it grows to a point where Google and Facebook control over 60% of the advertising in the U.S. digital ad market, over 50% of the global digital ad market. Meanwhile, media companies and ad revenue continue to decline. Nearly 80% of all digital search and ad revenue in the U.S. will go to Google this year, nearly 40% of all digital display ad revenue will go to Facebook. Wow. They control so much of the money, so much of what we see online when it comes to any sort of advertising. It's like Russian oligarchies. 
without Russia or the oligarchy. It is. And, of course, Facebook and Google like the status quo. Absolutely. So we'll see where that goes in court. The threat to good American jobs at Western Michigan University is not immigrants or even robots, but a team of brush-clearing goats. The goat-efficient <laughs> landscaping work will raise the ire of Labor Union, the American Federal Federation of State and County and Municipal Workers, which argued in a formal grievance that the goats are stealing union worker jobs. <laughs> the university says the goats are the most cost-effective and sustainable way to clear the brush, and as to how many humans the goats can realistically replace, the Washington Post calculates a single worker equipped with a tractor can clear as much brush as 3,600 goats in one month of work. With just 20 goats munching at Western Michigan, the union is fighting for a fraction of that job. How do you find a, uh, a unionized goat team? Well, they're not unionized. I know, but how do you find one? If you want to go union goat, then... Union goat. You just, you just search union goat. <laughs> Those goat unions are ruthless. Oh. I hear they have ties to the goat mafia. Could be. Mm. Scary. And an update from a story we had last week. What? We had the guy that... Put the alarm clock in the wall. Oh, yeah. How'd to, that go? To test. He wanted to get it down to a certain place so he could run a cable. I think he was putting his cable for yeah. his TV and wanted to run it through the so wall. So he had the alarm so he could hear it, I so guess. So he put the, he wanted the alarm down low enough and he'd hear it and that's where it was supposed to go. Right. Which seemed like there's, like there's other 15 ways. other ways right. to do that, but he did it with that. The couple near Pittsburgh finally retrieved the alarm clock that had stuck inside their wall for more than a decade. Sylvia and Jerry Lynn, who heard the alarm buzz at the same time every evening for 13 years, finally had the clock removed after their story gained national attention. Keith Anderdine and Michael Muccelli of low-cost heating and air came and grabbed the clock out of the wall for the couples. They just, they just they came take in a little like, camera down with we'll the scope and, and pull it yeah, out. Pulled it out. It says Lynn accidentally dropped the clock down the air vent back in 2004. Um, the couple expected the clock to die after a few months, but the now this is a detail we didn't have before. What? What's the brand of battery that lasted? Yeah, what well, ever ready. Blurasil Rayovac. Oh, oh rhymes with I just I just bought some of those. There you Ooh. go. Well, it means That's the, ba- great. the battery that means runs your battery forever. Lasts yeah. forever. And they said the battery didn't it didn't have like all that acid that happens if a battery sits in a, what a, a device great forever. Battery. So a power to, it went on for well, how is that? That's like. At least a decade. That's decade, great. 13, 14 years. So it's See? a good battery. They got it out of their wall. Everything can move Everybody's on as Everybody's happy. And nobody died. Good news. It's always good news. And the goat union. The goat union's up in... There is no goat union. It's the, the federal it's the, yeah. municipal city worker union. Yeah. They're up in arms over the goats. I know. That's tough. But deal with it. What are you going to do? It's called progress, people. Goats. That's right. Hey, speaking of progress, a uh, bride asks her bridesmaids to pay for her wedding dress, which is just nuts. At some point, like who wants to be in who wants to be a bridesmaid if you got to fork out money? Now, it all uh, goes cuz it's expensive, right? To get married, a wedding dress can be fairly expensive. Right. And one Australian bridesmaid was asked to to be to help her friend pay for her dress. Well, you're, that's that's considerate. You're not just a bridesmaid. You're now, you know, a financier. Hmm. Anyway, the bridesmaid uh, called it, named Haley, I guess, said she was overjoyed at being asked to join her friend Caroline's bridal party. However, her feelings of excitement soon grew to utter despair after her friend turned into Bridezilla. 
The bride-to-be began to obsess over every little detail from buttonholes for the groomsmen to table decorations. Haley was shocked when Caroline asked her bridesmaids to go dress shopping three weekends in a row. This, like, turned into, like, a full-time job. Wow. The bride eventually uh, settled on a set of $200 bridesmaid dresses but opted for a mega expensive one for herself costing $10,500. Wow. Man. I mean, I guess if you're going to have your bridesmaids pitch in, you probably need a lot of bridesmaids. But they're already buying their dresses. Right. Seems a bit much for a dress you're going to wear once. Yeah, totally. Instead of finding a cheaper alternative, Caroline asked her bridesmaids to pitch in for her dress. It's her dream dress, for heaven's sakes. That night, Haley received an email from Caroline. The subject line was, Bridesmaid Dress Contribution. And it made me break into a cold sweat. The bride asked if the bridesmaids could pitch in around $150 each towards her dream dress. Hmm. Do guys have dream tuxes? No. Hmm. The thing is, she's probably also expecting a gift from them. Oh, sure. Well, and a weekend, and then you got to pay for your trip wherever they're going, like for the big event. It's a lot of work. This seven is... bridesmaids she had. Oh, my goodness. For seven brides? Seven brides. And then there were some brothers that were involved, <laughs> Some seven of them somewhere. This is like waiting and waiting and hoping that somebody will just invite you into their home and have you as their guest. And then the Johnsons finally get around to inviting you into their home. And you get there, and it's an MLM <laughs> meeting. And if you can get three people under you who can get three people under them and they will buy a dress, you can make $150 per head. If you get seven people, you're making a lot of money. And then it's, yeah, bridal gowns for everybody. But no wedding. You find out there's no wedding. No wedding. Nothing could be worse than that, except something could be. How about an Albuquerque TV truck that was stolen while Cruz worked on a crime story? Crazy. Our own Shik Shumway is on the scene in Albuquerque to uh, report live on the scene. Shik, are you there? Thanks, Matt. While a television news crew was gathering footage for a story about a crime in the Albuquerque downtown area, a thief drove off in the station's SUV. KOB News Director Michelle Donaldson says the vehicle was recovered within a half hour without police assistance by following the GPS tracking device that was on board. She says the thief had fled up. Hey. Palakiko, did did you leave the keys in the car? Palakiko! Oh, boy. Schick? We lost him there. Uh, Schick. Wow. So wait a minute. I'm Palakiko must have left fused. So he was reporting on the Albuquerque truck where the, the, the... Criminal stole the TV truck. So, and then somebody apparently stole his truck. So, there's an area where there's a lot of theft. Yeah. A TV station goes to do a story on it. Their truck gets stolen. Right. We send our reporter, Shake Shumway, to cover that in our, in our Volkswagen bus. And it kind of sounds like that got stolen. And it sounds like he was blaming Palakiko. Like Palakiko left the keys in it. It sounds like something he would do. Who, Palakiko yes, or Shumway? Palakiko. Yeah. But it sound, this sounds like something that would happen to Shik Shumway. Oh, totally. Well, I mean, okay, first on the scene, uh, ninth on security and safety and securing the vehicle while on the scene. <laughs> it's not, I, I think we need to tell him it's coming out of his budget. 
Oh, yeah. He well, can't blame Palakiko as a student. No, right. And Palakiko, that's the third car Palakiko's had stolen. So what are you going to do? I think I'm sensing a pattern here. I know. Palakiko totally. also likes to collect books. He collects books and he tries <laughs> to sell them on eBay. He also collects cars and he sells them on cars.com. Cars. Cars.com. Oh, well. Well, try it again. I mean, it's good to have him back. I thought, I don't know. I thought we lost him for a while. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about why using logic alone to persuade others will fail most of the time. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know, no matter your education, your job, or your role in the community, you need to be able to persuade and influence people, right? Those that uh, do it really well do so in a way that maintains and even builds solid relationships. These are vital not only to help us succeed in our work lives, but in our personal lives as well. And in his new book, Picking the Low-Hanging Fruit and Other Stupid Stuff We Say in the Corporate World, James Sudikow gives us some advice on how to succeed in our jobs and our lives. James, we're honored to have you. Thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. This is uh, it's a it's an interesting topic. One of the proposals you make is at some point um, you got to if you want to influence people, you're, you're going to have to use more than just logic to do so. Right. I mean, we're emotional beings. We need to somehow touch on the emotional side. Yeah, and that's exactly right. It's interesting. I um I do a lot of work with a lot of different companies and 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 people at lots of different levels around, you know, how do you actually get your point across in a way that's going to resonate? And and one of the questions that I always ask people when I start is I say, "How many of you guys have ever gone into a presentation where you you have probably the tightest logical argument in the world like there's no holes in it. It's airtight." And you still walked out of there getting rejected, and almost everybody raises their hand every time. Right. And it's because there's this other stuff going on, right? There's this emotional aspect as to how we make decisions. And there's some really interesting research out there about how we as humans make decisions um, beyond the logic. Uh, so, so for me, it's really kind of not to say that we throw logic out the window, but we have to recognize that we are emotional beings and we need to combine the two. Because to to do it, and I think everyone's probably experienced somebody that was just being way too logical or even some people that are too emotional. Is it that we need to balance the two or do we need to favor more of the emotion uh, and less of the logic? What, what what do you think the balance looks like? Yeah, I know. It's a great question. You know, it's interesting. That depending on who you talk to, there's a lot of debate about this, actually, um, in the research. There are some cognitive psychologists that say, you know, throw logic out the window. It's all about emotion. There are others that are kind of still saying, no, you can't abandon logic. For me, in my practical experience in the business world, what I have found is you have to use both, right? But I often find that you've got to use the emotion to unlock somebody's ability to actually hear the logic. And like, for example, you know, I had a client I was working with um, years ago, and we had a really, really good logical, um, logical argument for why we needed to do something that we needed to do. And everybody was supporting it except for this one, this one leader. Um, and what I found later was that her reason for not supporting it wasn't that she didn't understand the logic. She actually fully understood and supported the logic. 
but she couldn't get herself to do it because there was an emotional aspect of the fact that her business unit was in a kind of a smaller uh, geographical area. Everybody knew each other. She had brought in all of the people and they were going to have to kind of move. So there was this emotional relationship factor that she had with all of the people that were going to have to get, get moved to a different business unit as a result of what we were doing. Hmm. And that was what was stopping her from seeing the logic. So once I unlocked that, then we were able to talk about the logical element of it, and, and she responded very well to that. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I always kind of, I always talk about uh, smoke and fire, and a lot of times we end up talking about the smoke, you know, the things that irritate us, and we try to get people to move on certain topics. But until you go put out the fire and actually get down to that hot emotional issue – you're going to just always be dealing with with the the fire. So how do you how do yeah. you get in and release the emotional side? Is it is it they just need to they need to be able to express it, or is that they need to sense that you actually get it and care about it? Yeah, for for me it's the latter. I mean, I think it's both, but for me it's actually the investment of time in the relationship, right? I mean, and I found that most really good. If you build a really strong relationship that allows for you and the other person to have a conversation about something that may, they may feel vulnerable about, which is fear or concern or those kind of emotional aspects that aren't going to show up in a, uh, in a boardroom meeting because nobody wants to show that vulnerability in there, if you're able to kind of do that where you kind of talk to them and understand and, they, and listen and that they get that you get it, then it, you, you kind of move from a different point to talk about how you're going to move forward. And it's worked almost every time to do that. And obviously you have to do it in a genuine way. You can't do it in some sort of manipulative, disingenuous way. But if you really invest in the relationship, then I think you open up yourself to a conversation or a set of conversations that you wouldn't normally have that allows for all of that, to your point, the fire stuff to kind of come to the surface and be talked about. Mm. And it's, yeah, you make a great point that it's, it can't be faked, right? I mean, they either trust you with their vulnerable, uh, you know, emotional truth, or they don't. And um, you'll know, I guess, if if you see progress being made. If if they're stagnant and they're not progressing and doing, you know, what they should be doing or doing what you need them to do, there's probably a deeper issue. Yeah. No, there actually is, I and mean, it's funny that you talk about the deeper issues. One of the things that I always try to do myself and I do some coaching for leaders as well. And I try to ask them to do it is you got to understand people's pressure points. Um, what is, what, where are they getting pressure that's either helping them go a direction or making them go a different direction than you want them to go. And those pressure points are very, they're almost always not logically driven. And what I mean by that, if someone is kind of really like putting a stake in the ground or they're, they're trying to drive something in a totally different direction than you want them to go I've always been able to unlock that by saying, where are they getting their pressure? And oftentimes it's stuff like, you know, am I doing a good job in my job? Am I, am I driving things, adding value? Or maybe I believe that I'm not adding value, so I really have to do a different way here. Or do I have a constituent group that I really want to be supporting me and therefore they are not liking this direction, so I can't let them down? Like there's a lot of that kind of stuff that goes on. Yeah. And if you understand people's pressure points, which, as I said, are, are most of the time emotionally driven, then you have a conversation about those things and you figure out how do we help them alleviate their pressure point. And once that's been alleviated, I mean, it opens things up really, really easily to be able to move things forward. But if you don't hit the pressure point, then you never really get there. You can't get past a certain level of the conversation. You well, and it's funny. I can almost hear an executive saying, "Well, they, you know, 
this stop all this fluffy stuff. They're paid to work. Just get to work. But the reality is that's the job of the leader, right? Is to is to get people to work. Yeah, I mean, the reality is, um, for me, and it goes back to the relationship point, it may be perceived as kind of this fluffy relationship thing, but relationships and the strength of the relationship allows people to have trust. And once people have trust, they're willing to kind of have conversations that they wouldn't be willing to have, which allows for you to kind of figure out how to move things forward in a much more effective way. You probably are aware there's a whole bunch of research out there on high-performing teams. And those teams that are highest performing have this level of trust that they can have these kind of conversations and they do it in a way that's open and upfront versus feeling like I'm not allowed to show that emotional vulnerability. And that stops a lot of things from moving forward in an effective way. Man, it's so true. And it really, I think, shows the complexity. I mean, these are human beings, right? And the human beings are what make up teams and relationships are what make up teams and you're not going to get high performance without somehow uh, dealing with the people and and their real emotional issues. Is Do you sense – I mean, is this something we do well in corporate America? <laughs> um, I, I think some do it well. I mean, I think there are some organizations that have really kind of embraced this notion of, like, let's build people's self-awareness. Let's build people's uh, ability to kind of build relationships. There are some cultures that are great at it. Um, and then there are some that, you know, some of the more hardline cultures who, who, who sometimes do really, really well that, that they don't. Um, so, you know, I think it's an evolving thing in the business world. And, and to your point earlier about people saying, ah, you know, is this the fluffy stuff? You know, the reality is I think more and more people are finding that over the long haul, those organizations that are really good at building relationships um, are the ones where people can actually move things forward most effectively. So it, 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 I think it's evolving. I'm not sure it's um, yeah. I'm not sure it's everywhere yet. But then you hear and see stories in the news about, you know, companies that, you know, pull people off of airplanes and all the airline problems we're having and mistrust and the, we hear about all of the numbers of people that are disengaged at work. I mean, it costs a lot of money to keep people working, and it costs even more money if they're not working effectively and as a team. So I guess in the end, this is something for companies that are it's worth investing in. Yeah, and then you, you hit it right on the head. I mean, one of the things that my consulting practice focuses on is is this talent issue. I mean, and you just hit it, is, you know, the people that we have there are, without a doubt, are the biggest asset that any organization has. You know, I always tell people that strategy is kind of a short-term differentiator, but your people are a long-term differentiator because at the end of it all, your people are the ones that come up with your strategy or your products or whatever it is that's differentiating you in the market. And so whatever we can do to help that group work more effectively together um, is really, really important. And it's very costly, like you said, to have to kind of make changes midstream and there's all sorts of collateral damage associated with that beyond the money um, in terms of knowledge loss, um, continuity of work. So the more we can do to kind of bring people to have a better understanding of how to work closely together and build that trust, the, the better the organizations will do. How do we – I mean I'm, I know that you can teach these kind of skills to people. I do that in my profession as well. And so if we need to get in and understand the pressure point, how do you actually – teach it? And and what would you teach specifically employees to do to get down and get to understand the real pressure point and release the pressure point? 
Yeah. So it's a really good question. And I actually have a couple of people that I'm coaching right now where we're talking about doing this. And I think the first thing I always ask them to do is to kind of think outside of kind of where they're trying to get their thing moving forward. So take yourself out of that for a second. So if I have topic X that I'm trying to influence this leader to do, and I'm not getting any movement on it, forget about the, the, the topic for a second and think about what is it that might be driving their behavior? So kind of what, what do you think's going on? What else do you know? Who else do you know in terms of this working with this person? I think that kind of what I would call kind of analysis of their situation, which is very difficult for a lot of us to do because we're so focused on what we want to do that sometimes it's hard for us even to think for a second that really what we need to be thinking about is the other person and what's mm. going on in their world. And so just getting people to mentally flip the switch to say, okay, it's not about me right now, it's about them, and let's understand what else is going on there, that's usually the first step that I try to get people to do. Then what I try to do is say, okay, now that you know more about what's going on with them, think about the thing you're trying to influence them to do. Does it help them or does it hurt them in terms of what else is going on around? And now you're going to start to have more information about, like, what's really happening and how you might want to plan to solve for that. Because, again, you can, no matter how accurate you are, and even if you need them to do something that's good for them, you still have to get them to do it. It's still on their terms. Right? So spending more time on them in the beginning is going to probably make this more efficient, make this happen faster. Yeah, and it's really hard for people to do that, right? Because none of us are really taught to do that. We're taught to think about our thing. And how do we want to sell, quote unquote, sell people to do it, right? In the business world, we're always talking about, you know, how do we sell it? How do we, how do we socialize this to, to get done? But we're not really thinking about why might people not want to do this? Yeah. And let's understand their perspective so that we can figure out how to, quote unquote, sell it better. Does, do you see, is this different in a family setting than a corporate setting? I mean, in a corporate setting, at least you've got the leverage of, you know, you you've if you're the boss, you own their job, you could fire them. But what about getting your your kids motivated to do what they need to do? <laughs> I could take some advice on that one. No. <laughs> um, no, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I, my wife is uh, is really funny. So we have kind of a unique family situation. We have a two month old, a two year old. And then my wife and I are legal guardians for for her younger brother and sister who are 16 and 20. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So we have this really dynamic thing where we've got almost every age group represented except for tweeners, and we're, we're happy not to have one of those in there. <laughs> right now, much, yeah. Too much going on. But, but what I've learned is, um, you know, we've had the benefit of kind of raising two older kids, and now we we got our two biological children that are our own. And, uh, you know, I've found that this relationship thing and the trust thing is really important as well. Like, I, I don't... I don't feel that there's that much of a difference. This kind of notion of allowing for vulnerability and even as a quote unquote parent. So we're, we're parental figures to the 16 and 20 year olds. We're not their mother and father, but um, this notion of kind of showing our own vulnerability and really kind of allowing for an open conversation, especially with like teenage kids, um, I think has been really, really valuable. So I'm not an expert on it, but I can honestly say it seems to work there too. You just got to tread a little bit differently, obviously, because you're dealing with kids. Yeah, no, and I think that's great advice too. That in the end, um, we we mean we'd love to probably be able to do this without any relationship or without any emotion. But in in the end, it is the relationship and the emotion that makes life worth working for. It makes families what they are, and it makes 
Um, so it's almost like the mountain you're not going to get around. If you want to have power with people, you got to understand the person. Yeah. At any yeah, level. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that's pretty cool. That's that's actually just that's critical advice. James, let's take a break, come back, and then I want to get into the book, why using uh, – I mean the book. I got to get the book title right. Uh, Picking the Low-Hanging Fruit. You got some great insights in just little fixes that we can make in our workplace that, uh, you know, that would help us and help the corporate world be a lot uh, easier for all of us. Stick with us with us more with James Sudikow. You can go to his website, jamessudikow.com. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends. Today we're talking about, uh, I mean, a bunch of things. But first and foremost, the book Picking the Low-Hanging Fruit and Other Stupid Stuff We Say in the Corporate World. It's important we we pay attention to our words. We've been speaking with the author of the book, James Sudikow. And uh, James James has been talking about an article that he wrote in Inc. Magazine, Why Using Logic Alone to Persuade Others Will Fail Most of the Time. You can get more information on his website, jamessudikow.com. And uh, look for the book, uh, again, Picking the Low-Hanging Fruit. Uh, James, thank you again for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. What, uh, in your book, talk about uh, why you wrote the book about picking low-hanging fruit. Is it, Do we have a problem with how we use language, how we try to influence people in our workforce? Well, yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, when I started, uh, I started my, my career 20 years ago in the consulting world, and and I remember vividly my first few weeks there, I, you know, I was going through orientation and I was learning all the different client work we were doing. And, and there were so many expressions that were being thrown around, like these idiosyncrasies of the business world that I just had no idea what they meant. Um, and, and over time, it became kind of comical to me to say, God, why do we talk this way? Why do we use all these weird expressions? Like, why can't we just talk in normal English? Um, and to your point, like, part of the reason that I wrote the book was one, just to, you know, make fun of us a little bit, because we, we do sound ridiculous when we, when we say some of the things that we say, but equally importantly, I think the the nugget of it at the end of the book is to say, you know, why do we have to keep talking this way? Because when you think about it at the end of it all, if we just speak like normal people, I think we have a better chance of actually getting the things done that we want to get done and communicate and influence better versus kind of having this weird language that we use that, that quite honestly, what I've learned is a lot of people don't know what a lot of these terms mean. And so they, they have this belief that they have to know what they mean because everybody else seems to know what they mean or is better at faking it than they are. That's so you true. have this weird dynamic going on where people don't necessarily know what's being said or they think it's dumb too, but we're all using the language anyway. So I'm just kind of making a, a case to stop doing it talk like normal people, and maybe that'll help a little bit. Well, and I guess, too, don't make the assumption that everyone in the room talks like you or knows all the jargon. Like An example of the jargon is some of the favorite ones you said were like, open the kimono. Yeah. <laughs> we just got to open the kimono. We got to be – or, you know, that certain things are baked into the project. Um, and so then as a newbie, you, I guess, spend all this time trying to figure out what the heck he means. 
Yeah, I, I I actually remember vividly a meeting where one one of the the project leaders was kicking off a project and they went through this like speech. It wasn't really a speech, but it was just kind of a short opening statement about what we needed to do. And I didn't understand any of it. I was like, <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> what am I supposed to do? But at the same time, I was kind of new to the organization, so I certainly wasn't going to let anybody know that I didn't know what was meant. And I kind of was like nodding my head like everybody else, and I had no clue what was going on. <sighs> and, and, and what was interesting is I wrote this book, and, and I talked to uh, a couple of people that were at a director level. And one of them kind of jokingly reached out to me and said, oh, you know what? I have not known what that term meant for like 15 years. I'm so glad that you finally told me what it means. <laughs> so it's not just the new people like I was that don't know what this stuff means. Again, it's just a case to say, why complicate it? It's already hard enough to get stuff done in a really effective way in the business world. Let's just simplify it and, you know, not have all these weird expressions. And let's just talk, you know, talk like normal people. And then are we too afraid? I mean, that's another thing. Do you have a culture where you can have somebody, you know, ask, raise their hand and, and say something like, so what is thoughtware or what is a right. paradigm shift? Can you clarify that with me? Because a lot of times you don't feel safe questioning. No, that's right. And, and it's all levels that don't feel safe, right? Obviously, a junior person doesn't feel safe because they don't have enough experience to know if they're supposed to know what that stuff means or not. And then a senior person obviously doesn't feel safe either sometimes because they've been doing this for a long time. So there's an expectation that they know what that language means. Although I have a really good case where there was a VP that we were working with. I, I give her so much credit. She had the guts to kind of stay in a meeting. What does this expression mean? You guys are throwing it around, and I have no idea what it means. Can you please tell me what it means? And everybody kind of laughed, and that was actually nice that she had the guts to kind of just say, I don't know what you're talking about. It's so true. And, I mean, I guess part of it is – it's cultural, right? It's it's how we – I guess we – the jargon distinguishes the culture except in order to maintain a cross-cultural environment, like you're saying, we probably ought to just say what we mean. Yeah, I know, and that's a really, really good point. I And this is a little bit of a, of a peripheral case to this whole thing, but I, I was talking to somebody um, in Europe um, not that long ago for a, for a client that I have that's, that's global and they have some European representation out there and – and she was literally telling me, she said, you know, the, 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 the people in the U.S., they're always using these football analogies. And it's kind of related to this. And she's like, we don't know what the heck they're talking about because that's not what we play. Right? Yeah. I mean, we play football as in soccer. And so they're like, we, we, we think, you know, we pay attention and we nod along and we, we, yeah, we say, yeah, but we don't really know what point they're trying to make. We don't know the game. <laughs> fourth quarter. We're in the fourth quarter. Yeah. What does that mean? First and 10. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Isn't that true? Does it, and then I guess it becomes a distraction. It becomes, what does it do? What's the harm? Yeah, so I think the challenge is it, it makes things take longer, right? So when we think about the business world, everybody's always trying to get a lot of really good things done, and they're trying to be as efficient as possible, and they're trying to get it done quick because there's a lot of pressure these days, especially with all the technology, to be faster and faster. I think what this does is it just kind of slows things down. It may not be incredibly measurable, but, I mean, it does just create unnecessary distraction and it creates unnecessary learning curves for people. We should be focusing the learning curve on the stuff that they should be doing for their job or the product or the service or whatever it is that the company does. Let's eliminate any sort of unnecessary distractions or learning curves that don't really actually have anything to do with the work that we're trying to do. It's so true. And even how many times have you spent so many uh, hours learning just systems or 
you know, learning how to turn your um, your receipts in for your trip that you took for the company. And you spend so much time on process and just admin information that you you're not even working on what you're supposed to be working on. Oh, I had true. You know, one of these days I'd love to do kind of a, just a fun study on how much time people spend on the kind of things we're talking about versus their job. And I don't mean as a way of saying, hey, that person isn't working hard. But I think there's going to be there will be some really interesting things that come out of that around, like, how much peripheral time are we spending on all the things that are distractions to the real job that we were hired to do? And it's, it's got to be a lot. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And so in a way, when you kind of merge your book um, picking the low-hanging fruit and your article in Inc. Magazine on why using logic alone won't always work. A lot of what this is about is it's almost like we just need to rethink how we are doing, how we're working with others. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, there's, there's some interesting research out there on influence that's related to this notion of, like, the dumb expressions that I wrote about in the book, and it's related to influence as well. It's this, con- this notion of common ground. And you've probably read about this before, but people are much more likely to be influenced by you when they perceive that they have common ground with you, when they perceive that they have something in in common with you. And that actually goes a really long way to help people want to kind of move along a path. And the reason that I mentioned that related to the, the book is, you know, there's a lot of people that don't talk about paradigm shifts and they don't talk about baking people into the process and they don't talk about all those weird things. But a lot of leaders kind of do that. They talk in that language. And if we're trying to establish common ground with employees or people at a staff level, the way not to do it is to use all of these crazy expressions where they're like, well, I don't talk like that. So yeah. I don't have a lot in common with that leader. There's a great example. when I, The last company I worked for before I launched my consulting practice that had a chief operating officer who was, who was awesome at this. He was a really, really smart guy. Um, but he would literally get up there at the uh, the town hall meetings, which were broadcast around the world, and he would say things like, you know what, guys, our job is to make really good stuff and to sell it re- really well, and if we have problems, to fix it. And everybody loved him. Because Simple. Because they're like, this is a guy that talks the way we talk. He's not throwing a That's bunch so of like true. weird things at us. And that established common ground, and everybody loved the guy. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And again, if you like you were saying earlier, if you spend some time listening to what they're going through, trying to get down to kind of their pressure points, you'll open – they'll give you the language you can use. Then you just use their language. Right. So you don't even need yeah. to make up the language. You And you don't even need to just be the average Joe that can just speak average. You need to also just listen to what words they're using and then go with what they're saying. That's, that's exactly right. And one of the other things that I've written about on Inc. is this notion of – when you're trying to talk to somebody, when you're trying to influence somebody, or, or whether you're just trying to have a conversation, you need to speak the language they speak. And I don't necessarily mean like French or Spanish. Of course, you need to do that on a global perspective. But I mean, if you're talking to a finance person, you should talk finance. Yeah. And when you're talking to an HR person, you should talk HR. And when you're talking to an IT person, you should try to talk IT, although that's hard for most of us. But you should try to do it, yeah. right? Um, it's that notion of speaking in the language of the other person, not speaking in the language that you feel most comfortable with. And it goes back to that same point of the pressure point. You've got to take yourself out of yourself for a second and think about the other person. It just makes things go so much better. 
Such great advice. James, thanks so much for your time. Uh, Wonderful work there. The book is Picking the Low-Hanging Fruit and Other Stupid Stuff We Say in the Corporate World. You can find out more information about James and his work and uh, his consulting and and coaching as well by going to jamesudakow.com. jamesudakow.com. We'll take a break, my friends. Continuing the journey to help you be the best you can be, this is The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody, and top of the morning to you. Hope you're having a great day so far. Happy Tuesday. And uh, boy, oh boy, oh boy. Happy Cow Appreciation Day. This is the day where... Thank you. <laughs> we uh, we brought a cow to work day. It's just walking around the studio today. Today's the day you appreciate every cow in your life. Those cute little Chick-fil-A uh, ads where you, you know, eat more chicken, save a cow kind of thing. Today, uh, go hug a cow. If you got one, hug one. If you don't have one, make sure you ask the farmer and then go out and hug it. Just uh, to be courteous. I might eat one today. Mm. I very much appreciate cows. Are you? Yeah, I've never, I've never loved an animal more than a cow. That's probably true. Medium, medium rare. Yeah. Mm. That sounds bad. <laughs> that sounds very bad. Cows are they're more than just meat. Yeah, they're cow, also leather. Cows are, cows are people too. <laughs> Actually, they're not. But. Uh, they're, they're great. And thank heavens for them, right? So celebrating cow appreciation today, uh, we've got a lot of other things we'll be talking about, including how much power can one image wield? Hmm. For example, do you remember um, that picture, that image? Well, just the image of uh, United Airlines pulling somebody off of an airplane. Of course. That's a pretty vivid image. Uh, the, the girl um, during the Vietnam War... With napalm burns right. and yeah, uh, or Tiananmen Square, the the person walking toward the tank. So Trump's we're... Trump's tweet with a taco salad in front of him. Yeah. I'll never forget that. That was <laughs> that was your favorite of all Trump's tweets. That's the most memorable one <laughs> for you. That's um, we're going to be talking about the power of images, and we live in a day and age where an image can spread. Uh, virally, and we'll be talking about what makes it so powerful. Is it as powerful as it used to be? Is it more powerful because of today's day and age? So much, uh, so much is going on with social media that uh, there is power in images, but there's actually more to it too, right? So if you want to create a movement, you might need more than an image. So we'll get into all of that with a wonderful guest uh, in just a few minutes. Plus, of course, empty news throughout the day, uh, the latest and greatest information that you need to know, some of which you didn't even know you needed to know, but it might be good to know. Our goal is to help you get all the tools you need to live a healthier, happier life. And that, uh, I promise, we will do throughout the day. Three hours of the show, if you didn't know. Just stick with us. Every hour, different topics. And, uh, you know, maybe a few surprises as well. Uh, But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? The FBI is investigating the Monday crash of a U.S. Marine Corps plane in Mississippi that killed at least 16 people and is believed 
to have had a structural failure at 20,000 feet. The KC-130 refueling tanker had departed from Memphis before crashing near a highway in rural LaFleur County, Mississippi. At around 4 p.m., the Marine Corps confirmed only that a mishap occurred and has yet to release any further details, including its destination and if any civilians were on board. Witness Andy Jones told a local Fox News affiliate that he saw the plane corkscrew out of the sky with one engine burning before it crashed into soybean fields near the town. Firefighters struggled to carry out rescue and recovery efforts due to several high-intensity explosions. They were believed to be ammunition on the plane that was exploding. Oh, boy. Unidentified investigators were also cited in local media saying the scale of the debris suggests a possible mid-air explosion, though that theory has not been confirmed. Hmm. Kind of a crazy story. Federal authorities plan to end over a decade of searching for a new FBI headquarters, the Washington Post reports. For years, the FBI officials have warned that their current headquarters in the J. Edgar Hoover building were crumbling and posed a potential security threat. Officials hope to sell the property to a private real estate developer. Trump. And put $2 billion towards a new FBI facility in the D.C. suburbs. But officials from the General Services Administration, which oversee federal property, plan to cancel the search. On t- uh, they said it on a phone call Tuesday. The FBI is expected to remain in its current headquarters. Well, what, so they're building, they say it's falling apart, but you're, eh, we're going to stay there. You're fine. Hey, 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 it's a building. Where are you going to build it? I mean, it's centrally located. It's in downtown D.C. But and then, but a two billion dollar property is what they want. And but wasn't the Apple the new Apple building was like one billion dollars or something? Wasn't it? something like that? And everyone was real like, estate prices are different in California. Yeah, sure. It's <laughs> a lot. The Seattle yeah. City Council voted unanimously on Monday to impose a impose a two point two five percent income tax on the city's wealthiest residents, individuals making more than two hundred fifty thousand, and married couples filing jointly. Uh, with returns over $500,000, would be taxed with the city estimating the tax would bring in $140 million a year, which could be used to pay for transit to lower property tax and uh, to lower property taxes overall yeah, across yeah. the city. Council member Lisa Herbold, co-sponsor of the measure, said the middle class is being squeezed as well, and one of the reasons is our outdated, regressive, and unfair tax structure. Seattle Mayor Ed Murray said the city is ready for a legal challenge, and we welcome that fight, adding that if the city prevails, it won't just be Seattle that is doing progressive income tax. This could spread because oh, they're looking, my heavens, you're, yeah. look, you're looking for revenue. Yeah. So let's tax them. If they win a court case, then we can win it too. Oh, boy. <laughs> There's a lot of ways to make money. Yeah. We'll Scary. Okay. Uh, Jim Causey escaped from a South Carolina prison this week. But his methods this time around were far more high-tech than they were a dozen years ago when he broke free from another maximum security prison uh, in uh, – it doesn't say which state he broke out of there. The authorities in South Carolina say they believe Mr. Kazi, who was captured on Friday – so this was last week – in Texas after fleeing from prison on Tuesday night had used at least one cell phone and a drone to make his escape. When he was incarcerated, we believe a drone was used to fly in the tools that allowed him to escape like wire cutters and yeah, things like that. Yeah, that's a big deal. Uh, let's see. They said that uh, Mr. Kazi was serving a life sentence for kidnapping a lawyer. A tip early Friday led the authorities to a Motel 6 in Austin, Texas, where Mr. Kazi, 46, was staying. Um, let's see. The authorities in South Carolina notified the Texas Rangers, who visited the room around 4 a.m. He said there they found Mr. Kazi sleeping. He did not resist their efforts to take him in. He had a semi-automatic pistol, oh, a wow. pump shotgun, extra ammunition, four cell phones, and $47,000 in cash. What? Where yeah. did he get the money? Doesn't say. 
It says authorities did not identify the source of the cash. What? So he had a couple guns, some guns, uh, ammo, four cell phones, and $47,000 in cash. Unbelievable. What yeah. a, that, there's going to be a movie on that but one. But he got out of jail with a drone, apparently, that dropped well, tools in the yard and he was able to get I out I thought of we were watching for drones now. Apparently not. Not in South Carolina. Well, I mean, I think it's one thing to get the tools, right? Uh-huh. Then it's another thing to get out. Right. Like, they could give me all the tools. They could, they could you know, deliver an entire Ace Hardware store for me in prison, and <laughs> I still probably door. couldn't yeah. get out. And then somehow from Tuesday to Friday, he was able to get $47,000. Well, you know, that's just the lottery. Is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. He, right when he got out, he played the lottery. And he won. Unbelievable. So the odds were in his favor. What a story. Wow. Wow. Man, so much to talk about. Did you um, Did you see Donald Trump uh, put the hat back on the Marine as it blew away? I did not. You've missed that? Yeah. Well, watching the news sometimes. Yeah, you might want to go back and see that one. Very windy. He was boarding Air Force. Well, he was boarding the helicopter. Whatever so it's we call Marine it. One. Marine One. And the wind was blowing and blew the Marine's hat right off his head. Mm-hmm. And President Trump went and chased it down. Really? Picked it up, brushed it off. Oh, nice. Walked back to the Marine, put it right on his head. Because the Marine's standing at yeah, attention. Yeah, the Marine didn't budge. Right. Then the President puts the hat back on his head. It kind of like pats his shoulders and then the hat blows off again. <laughs> Whoops. And then he starts to go get it. And uh, the, the Air Force colonel that's there that follows him around. Uh, went and got it, I guess. We got it, sir. Put him on the air. That's gold. It's pretty cool. That's gold, Jerry. Gold. Yeah. Nothing like seeing the president chase a hat. Huh. I'll have to go find that. It was really, it was really actually pretty cool, but it also shows you that the president still doesn't know probably the protocol. Probably should have just got on the helicopter. Or and just like patted the soldier. Sorry, you lost your hat. And it's, yeah. But. You know, but I mean, I mean, slipped him a twenty. The human reaction is yeah. walk over, pick up. The well, hat. Right, and you don't yeah, know so what to fine. do. I mean, probably you know, he could have been worse. He could have pulled the hat down really far, like over his ears, <laughs> to keep it on. Right. Anyway, it was pretty cool. Uh, Trump, by the way, I don't know if you've heard this. Back in the news, yes, uh, Russia. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, Russia's back. Just every week, something pops up. Now his son apparently called. You know, went to a meeting. To received emails, received went to a email, meeting. Yeah. yeah, and and now it's really and he took Kushner and Bannon and Bannon, they're all in there because they thought they were going to get dirt on Hillary. Yes, this what? was this was a previously undisclosed in the, yeah. the the forms you fill out for your security clearance. Yeah. You have to disclose all meetings of foreign yeah, people. You, you can't say I was going to meet with these lawyers who is, were going to right. hand me all this dirt on Hillary Clinton. Right. Can't put what? Where do you where do you put that down? That's embarrassing. Did you get the connection of like who this lawyer was no. that he met with? No. So the lawyer that Don Jr. met with represents a pop star that Donald Trump appeared a, a Russian pop oh. star that Donald Trump appeared in his music video. Oh, right. But it wasn't it? Didn't have something to do with the the pop star's father is a billionaire in Russia. Mm-hmm. And we know billionaires in Russia are allowed to be billionaires by yeah. Putin. So mm-hmm. there's like your Putin connection. That billionaire is the guy that, that set up the deal that got the Miss Universe pageant in ah, Russia. Ah, yeah, there so you go. here's how everyone knows yeah. each other, yeah, right? Yeah. So they, it wasn't like – so that's how they got – this lawyer got the meeting is because she knows people that they know. And, and then they apparently were they to, weren't getting any real dirt 
And then they because brought they started, up some other issue. They were talking about this adoption thing that happened yeah. a couple of years ago where Russia just cut off all adoptions No adoptions out of Russia. And so when they found out that it wasn't going to be about dirt on Hillary Clinton, they just ended the meeting and left. They were, they, they were all like frustrated. But now the reports are saying the initial email told them that they were going to get dirt from you know Russian sources on Hillary Clinton. So they kind of knew what they were getting into. It wasn't like they just surprised them with content. One, once again, no sign of any connection to Russia. <clears throat> just the just the media. This is the fifth people or fifth person in the uh, cl- or the Trump administration since yeah. inauguration. You that know said, what? Oh, by the way, call me when wrong. there's call, <laughs> call me when there's seven people. Is it seven? Is that that uh, seven's? I think far? the lucky number for the Democrats. And honestly, I don't believe any of this has to do with trying to get you know collusion yeah. or something. Right, right. I think Russia may have been trying. I think oh, they were definitely trying. But I, I think you ended up with people who are not politically savvy stumbling into meetings, yeah. thinking like, "Well, I'm going to take a meeting." That's what you do when you're in politics. Right. You take a meeting and you're like, "Uh oh," and you back up, but then they don't disclose it. Yeah. And then you lie by saying, oh, we've never had any contact, and it just looks bad. Yeah. But then you keep lying to cover it up instead of just trying to get everything out in the open. That's the thing. And yeah. it looks bad. Now, but weren't they successful in getting some dirt on Hillary? Well, they, I mean, they did come up with this. <coughs> oh, yeah. Excuse oh. me. That's actually more of a virus, I think, <coughs> than dirt. <coughs> it's pretty bad. <coughs> She's still got that cop right here. Not productive, as you say. <laughs> not productive at all. Um, not productive. That's anyway, gold. That's gold. <laughs> there's gold in them there, heels. There's always money in the banana stand, as Grandma used to say. Um, we've uh, also – I don't know if you guys saw it because I sure didn't, but uh, somebody talked to me about the Home Run Derby. <gasps> so, I watched the whole thing. Did you really? What a great sport where they just throw you like soft – pitches and then you're supposed to crank them out of the park. And then the six seven two eighty guy just crushes it because who won know. though? Who was the official winner? Aaron Judge. Now From he, the he had oh, okay. a tough He's he a was in a tough spot because the guy that came up before him crushed twenty two home runs. Yeah. So the pressure was really on. That's a lot of home. But run. he did it handily. Handily won. He got twenty three. Effortless. And almost. then he just smoked everybody else that came after him. Did he really? Oh, yeah. You know, he's not even wearing a helmet in no. the Home Run Derby. Well, none of them are. None of them are. I mean, well, you... It's all about seeing your face. You don't want to cover it up. That's right. And uh, who, what was his name? The guy that he beat, who hit 22 home Se- runs from the Marlins. It's like Seo uh, or Boar. Boar. Yeah. So it, Boar gets 30 extra Justin seconds because if you hit over... If you hit two 440-foot home runs, huh. you get an extra 30 seconds. Holy so he cow. took that 30-second break. Uh, Stanton came over, who had lost in the first round, who was last year's champion, came over with a donut and shoved <laughs> it in his mouth. And so he chomped down on a donut during his break. <laughs> but uh, didn't work. Donut breaks. Boy, see, I, th- I used to think all baseball players had was chewing gum and, and tobacco. Oh, and sunflower seeds. Now they have donuts. I saw, like, the last four home runs from Judge, and he just looked like he was out there just swinging comfortably. Not not, not a big effort. Yeah. Just really just following through. He looks like he's about 12. Yeah. Cody Bellinger I'm looks even old. younger. Yeah, he's he the other rookie. He did okay. He made it to the final four, but then Man, Aaron Judge beat him. Well, that's cool. Man, I'm glad you watched. Mm-hmm. Because what would we be talking about? I know what we'd be talking about. Donnie and Marie. I'm going tonight. No. Yeah, I am. In Vegas? No. No. They're coming to... They're coming to a town near me. 
right next to the mat. And mm. what's lucky is it's probably going to be 100 degrees. Yeah. And uh, it'll probably rain based on my luck lately. Is this going to be tied in with some Osmond uh, real estate meeting? No. Is that the opener for the show? It's a, it's a, yeah. it's a timeshare. We'd like pitch. to tell you about this Osmond <laughs> program no. that we've got going on. It's just it's it's just Donnie and Marie, and you just a blast to the past. It's gonna be great. <laughs> Sounds like the, a blast. Were they seeing Puppy Love? Is that their, <clears throat> is that the, yeah? That's Donnie's and they'll song, sing. Though. I'm a little bit country, okay. and I'm a little bit rock and just roll. Just play the hits. In fact. Will you go find the Donnie and the yeah, Donnie no, Osmond uh-uh. not at all. and the Michael Jackson award show uh, announcement thing that they did? Oh, together. I remember seeing that. It's pretty funny. Well, it's like it's oh. two really young superstars in their day so, that neither of them knew how to do it. Do you have a VIP pass? No, I just have mm. a P pass. Mm. For have you ever had him on the show? He no. should be here. No, no, I haven't had him on the show. That you could ask him about his appearance in We've the had Weird Al on the show, I believe. We've had N. Osmond. I think it Osmond was. I thought it was his son. And oh, you weren't here. I was. I interviewed here. him. Yeah, you ought to remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was good here. guy. So you'll be in the proximity of an Osmond. I will be wearing purple socks mm. and uh, sitting uh, in the grass area because I wanted. I knew it was going to be a late day. So I, I'm thinking I might take a blanket and a pillow. So you missed the home run derby, and mm-hmm. we know you're going to miss the All-Star game, too, which is tonight. Yeah. Man. What am I doing? Yeah. I always have to check my calendar All-Star earlier. Games. That's the problem. I'm not going to watch it. None of my Dodgers are starting. Well. And they have the best record in baseball. Maybe doesn't that's, quite But that's compute. probably be- that's better for your Dodgers. They get the rest? They get, all get to rest. See how that yeah. works? It's simple. It's simple. Okay, we'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we'll be talking about how much power can one image actually wield. The power of the visual media. Up next. Stick with us. You know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words, right? But does a picture have more power to change the world than all the writing of a journalist? Pictures have been the main staple in media, and the most memorable ones are very easy to recall. Do you remember the the uh, crying napalm girl, the man falling or jumping off of the World Trade Center building, um, or even just most recently, the young Syrian refugee who washed up on the shores of Turkey Changing for, I think, a lot of people, the image of, uh, of really what's going on with, this, with immigration around the world. How much power uh, do these images actually wield? So here to speak with us more about this subject is Dr. Nicole Dahman, an associate professor of journalism at the University of Oregon. And uh, her research focuses on ethics and technology in visual communication with an emphasis on photojournalism in the digital age. Dr. Dahman, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. What a fascinating, uh, you know, idea. This, this, this one image, one picture. I mean, I remember vividly. In fact, president uh, in the in the presidential election, Hillary Clinton brings up that picture of that little boy uh, in the back of an ambulance, just sitting there after his family had been killed and and devastated. One image really can change a lot of moods, a lot of you know political movements and can start a lot of things is it is it as is it is it as strong as we all sense it is these images 
Well, Matt, what we're seeing with research is that it's really actually conventional wisdom that photographs can move us to action. Um, yes, absolutely, photographs can be gut-wrenching. They can awaken us to situations, but they really have limited power. Mm. So really, I mean, we, we feel it, we feel the impact of it, except uh, in the end, I guess it still goes back to politics. It still goes back to the, is- the initial issues, the initial debates. Well, so, for example, you mentioned the photo of the drowned Syrian boy on the beach. So that photo actually was published, and that incident happened back in 2015, yet we still have the Syrian refugee crisis. We still have people dying every single day in Syria. So at the time, yeah, that photo really awakened us to the horrors in Syria. Um, And it really seemed to move people to action, right? So, you know, uh, some statistics show us that 20 million people saw that photo via Twitter in 24 hours. Internet searches spiked. Uh, Some governments opened their borders. But what we actually saw, though, was that it was a very short-lived effect. And as you mentioned, too, the photo of the boy in the back of the ambulance, that was a year later. Mm. The same thing happened again. We were awoken for a brief time, and then our interest moved on to something else. What is it about... Is this is this a natural phenomenon? Would this have happened 30, 40 years ago, or is it just that, that it's just quickly replaced with the next image? Yeah, that's a great question, and that's absolutely something I spend a lot of time looking at. You know, absolutely, as you mentioned, we now have this sort of oversaturation of horrific images, yeah. and a new horrific image every single day because of digital technology and social media, and so we have more and more difficult images coming to our doorstep, and we can sort of only attuned to so much. Whereas, you know, you think about iconic images from World War II or the Vietnam War. Yes, there were a lot of images in that time period, but there were only a few key images that we saw across, you know, front pages of newspapers across the evening television broadcast. I mean, I, I guess in the end, it's one thing to be moved. It's another thing to know how to fix some of these problems. Um, I remember with the Ferguson uh, shootings and a lot of the, the shootings of police officers shooting African-Americans, it created this swell. And every time the next video would come out, a lot of movement, a lot of the interest. But then at some point, you still have to fix the problems. Right. And, you know, I think that does speak. And I do want to be clear that images absolutely can help us tell stories in a way that words can't. Images can yeah. be very important journalistic tools. As you mentioned, um, police brutality and racial violence in our country. Absolutely, we've had a number of important examples recently where that visual documentation helped to bring attention and dialogue to a particular incident that may have otherwise gone overlooked. So, yeah, images can communicate information. They can catch our attention. They're processed more quickly. Um, They can provide that historical documentation. They can provide evidence. But again, it's this conventional wisdom that they can have that long-term impact unless we look at, as you're suggesting, you know, the key issues and the problem and move forward with that issue. The image can only sort of do so much. Well, and in a way, I guess this is the the age-old issue of, in a way, media, it seems like, is supposed to bring up the issues, not fix it, not solve it. So uh, in the end, you're doing your job if the media can get the right images out there to create – you use a great line in your article. Um, you you wake us up. The, the emotional connection to the image might help us overcome the psychic numbing right. that occurs. And so – at some point, it, it wakes everybody up, but then it doesn't seem like it's the journalist's job to make the change. 
Well, that's a really interesting point that you bring up. And a new area of research that I've been examining actually looks at that journalistic responsibility to cover the story beyond the problem. Uh-huh. So, yeah, as you said, there journalists you do have a responsibility to uncover that problem, right? That's that watchdog function yeah. of the news media. And we need that, absolutely. Journalism should continue to do that. But we must also ask the question, you know, um, if we're just reporting the problem, if we're just reporting the bad stuff, are we really giving audiences the complete picture? Hmm. And so um, there's a growing practice term, solutions journalism, and other related genres such as constructive journalism, restorative narrative, that also says we need a more holistic approach to news reporting. So not just asking, you know, who, what, when, where, but also asking what's possible. Oh, interesting. And uh, boy, that so it really. I mean, it's like it's a now you're energized to create the solutions. You're energized to construct the outcome. Well, and again, the important thing to remember here is it's not journalism constructing the solution. It's journalism reporting on how different groups, individuals yeah. are approaching that difficult problem. So really important to recognize that this journalistic practice is still rigorous. It's still fact-based. It still has all the tenets of journalism. It's just reporting beyond the problem. But what we are seeing is research is suggesting that audiences absolutely are more energized by solution stories. They're more likely to share such stories. They're more likely to look for such stories, more likely to spend time reading that story, Mm. as well as to feel that, you know, know, to, to, to combat that mission fatigue that we might all feel on a situation like homelessness. Right. Well, and, and I guess, too, in a way, maybe the pictures transcend the the politics and the kind of the the binary either or choices were forced on so many issues, you know, pro gun, pro, you know, gun rights, pro uh, safe, you know, communities. But but having a picture of somebody that's been shot in a situation it, it transcends all politics and it might, you know, actually humanize the issue. Well, and again, that's something else that we're seeing is photos. Um, a photojournalist who I spoke with recently for some research I'm doing told me, and this quote just sticks with me, if you can look someone in the eyes, they're harder to ignore. Oh, so true. And so absolutely, images can inspire hope. They can reveal healing they can create that empathy and that human connection. So, you know, we all are facing these same problems right now, right? Poverty, economic disparity, racial tension, social justice, mass shootings, um, as well as sort of systemic issues, as I just mentioned, too. And then things like natural disaster, war. Um, and so what are some potential solutions to these very difficult societal problems? And so images absolutely can help to bring information to those situations, to audiences. You take something like climate change, right? Climate change tends to be very polarizing. Um, you know, we've seen some research, too, that says, don't just show us the air pollution. Don't show us that polar bear on that lone piece of ice. Show us those more um, clarifying, right? Those more comprehensive, those mm. more ethical visuals that might give us information on recycling or solar panels. Again, that type of image is going to have, as again, research is showing us uh, a stronger and more immediate effect. What would it be? What, what happens to journalism? I mean, if we had no images, right. what would happen to it? And what, would, what percentage of effectiveness would it drop? 
Right. Well, and again, that's a, that's a great question. So what we've seen over time is that images in the news media have increased. Part of that has to do with technology, right? It's easier to take images now. It's easier to transmit images. It's easier to print and broadcast images. But we also have um, audiences seeking images. Again, as I mentioned earlier, you know, audiences are more attracted to stories with visuals. They're mm -hmm. more likely to share stories on social media that have images. Something that I like to emphasize when it comes to visual communication, too, is photographs more than written or spoken text are more of a universal language, so you don't face that language barrier in interpreting international news with so an image in the same way that you would with written or spoken news, so they can be more sort of globally processed, Yeah, which is another good benefit of imagery. Well, um, we, no, absolutely. We've seen it over. I mean, President Trump has had a lot of the image of him pulling one of the prime ministers out of line at like the G whatever G7 meeting or whatever it was, G20 meeting. I mean, you can't or the the the, the hand holding issue between uh, President Trump and Mrs. Right. Trump. I mean, the, these images then they do they, they kind of just have their own universal language, universal narrative. They do. And, you know, I think another sort of conventional wisdom is that, you know, images are the truth. Images always tell the truth. And we all know now, right, that images yeah. are not always the truth. And it doesn't necessarily have to be digital manipulation that makes the image um, not truth or not fact. Um, we see lots of situations where it may be the angle in which the image was taken or the crop or the narrative, right, the written uh, caption or the story that goes with the image that can really manipulate what we see in the image. But it is important to remember that all images are constructions of reality, right? Journalism is a construction of reality. Yeah. But what we seek for and what we obtain in, um, you know, real journalism is that best obtainable version of the truth. And those, those are the words of the legendary journalist Carl Bernstein, whether it's a text narrative, a spoken narrative, a visual narrative, journalism seeks for that best obtainable version of the truth. And images can do that. Images can show us the reality of a situation. They can show us that, um, or they can give us that emotional reaction, right? Images make us feel in a way that words don't always, again, whether it's sorrow, joy, pain, empathy, so true. So true. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Nicole Dahman, an associate professor at the School of Journalism and Communications at the University of Oregon. We're talking photos and journalism and the power of pictures. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. Uh, on the phone with us is Dr. Nicole Dahman, Associate Professor at the School of Journalism and Communication at the University of Oregon. And uh, she is has an emphasis on photojournalism in the digital age. Today we're talking about the power of a picture uh, to create a movement, to create at least to garner attention and, and to make things happen. And uh, Nicole, I guess you kind of have debunked a little bit of a myth for us that Undoubtedly, uh, pictures do create a, a stimulus there. I mean, it, it's it's interesting. It might bring our attention to some issues in the world, but it doesn't necessarily mean those issues are going to be solved long term. Absolutely. Again, images can make us aware of a situation, 
but they don't necessarily move us to action. They don't always sway public opinion. They don't always influence governmental decision-making or, as so many people often claim, change history. So true. Is um, And I guess you, bring out, you brought up a good point last uh, before the break about – because the image could say one thing, and then I noticed – um, like with the Melania hand-holding snub on that European trip or whatever, the image kind of speaks for itself, but none of us knows – we don't know the background. We don't know the history. And I guess editors need to make sure that they're not making up the story or bringing in an expert to give supposed context on the picture that, that isn't real. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's many different ways that photographs can distort the reality of a situation without necessarily being – digitally manipulated. I mean, digital manipulation is the obvious example of an untruthful photo, but there's lots of different ways. So what I recommend uh, to my students as well as to audiences and interpreting visual information, because we should be critical of photojournalistic images just as we should be critical of written narratives or, you know, broadcast journalism. Um, Again, look for sort of discrepancies in the visual itself. Does it appear to have a strange crop, a bizarre angle? Equally important, though, is to look at the narrative of that photo. Where is the narrative coming from? Um, Again, sometimes we have to sort of check our own biases in these situations, but what is the narrative of the photo? Does the narrative of the photo speak to the image? But the most important thing is to really cross-check information. We have a multitude of news sources available to us today, and again, we all have those news sources that we're comfortable and familiar with and that are our go-to, but we also need to look for that same story as reported from different news outlets to get a more complete picture. Mm, So true. I mean, do you sense that we're in a different age visually than we were even 20 or 30 years ago? I mean, because a picture of in the Vietnam War still stands out for so many people. Um, Do you sense it's different now just by volume, by amount of visual data we're sorting through? Well, it's interesting. Um, When you talk to some photojournalists, some photojournalists will call you know, as you said, the Vietnam War image by Nick Oot, right? Some people think of that as the golden age of photography in which we had these one or two sort of key photos that rose to the forefront of imagery and still help us define that event, right? When you ask people what's the first image that comes to mind when you think of the Vietnam War, they're going to say that photo of a, a young girl badly burned by napalm. Lots of people recognize and remember that image. Whereas you ask them now, um, take something like Hurricane Katrina, which has now been 10 years. What's mm. the first image that comes to mind of Hurricane Katrina? It's uh, a much more challenging yeah. question to answer. Yeah, the you dome. Yeah, get, yeah. Get, well, you might get the Superdome yeah. or roof rescues or flooding, but you just get a lot more diversity of response. So true, huh? You get there's more. more viewpoints to get the image from now. And not just from the news, right? We don't just rely on the newspaper to come to our front door, the evening broadcast. You know, I can get news any second from Twitter. When I hear about an incident, I go straight to Twitter. That's true. And I'm not just getting the picture from, you know, a news media. I'm getting pictures from those people who are right there on the scene. Well, and apparently – oh, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, too, when it comes to iconic images, what we're seeing now, too, is those iconic images don't just come to us from the news media. You think about that plane landing on the Hudson, right? Right. The miracle on the Hudson. That photo was taken by a citizen who just happened to be walking by. Mm. So think of how that changes. And then, I mean, I guess, are there there rights, are there responsibilities for media companies to then 
procure those? I mean, because now all of a sudden you've got everybody pulling their phone out the minute You're they're right. pulled over or the minute anything's going on. Is Does that change anything as far as journalistic ethic? Right. Well, journalistic ethics is one of my key areas that I study, and absolutely it does give us a lot of new questions from the journalistic ethic responsibility perspective. So let's go back to, say, graphic images. So a lot of the images that we've been talking about are very difficult, painful images to look at, right? These are victims. Um, That one on the beach, again, that image of the three-year-old just haunts me, Um, you know, washed ashore from Mm. the Syrian refugee crisis. So, you know, what is that news media responsibility to publish a difficult image? Journalists and editors and publishers spend a lot of time thinking about this. There's a lot of ethical guidelines, Society for Professional Journalists, the National Press Photographers Association, Pointer, all have very specific journalistic recommendations to make those difficult decisions as to whether or not you should run such an image. The public, of course, are not expected to be, nor do they have those trained journalistic codes or experience to make such decisions. Those images just go out there with abandon. Um, So again, lots of things to think about there, and then audiences pick those images up from a variety of sources. And, I mean, I guess, too, nowadays, uh, yeah, you you could pick up images that were illegally obtained um, by a non-journalist, but then they can still be proliferated by by media companies. Well, and that's where, you know, a, a, a legitimate journalistic organization would not just run such a photo without independent verification right. of that situation. Um, and again, that's one of the things that's going to separate a legitimate news source from something less credible, less yeah. trustworthy. Do, do you sense that um, in the end, because the, the benefit, too, is these are emotions, these are raw emotions that are at play is I guess as a journalist, um, you really want the visual and you want the contextual behind the story. Do you sense that we're becoming so visually driven? Like, for example, Facebook, they 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 weigh your posts better if you have yeah. visual than versus just just textual. So, do we already weigh visual higher, even though it's equal? Well. You know, and again, an important point that you just made there is the context is critical because certainly a photograph cannot give us the complete story. And so we absolutely need that written narrative to give us that context, to give us a more complete picture. But the reality is audiences today, you know, we're all just so overwhelmed and we have very limited time and there's so much information out there. A lot of research shows us that we just look at the headline, the photo, and maybe the caption. So we really are going straight to the image, and audiences don't always look for that depth narrative, especially, as you mentioned, a context like Facebook, right? We often just have the image Mm. without a lot of context to it. What do you think? What's your take on the White House struggles with the press pool, and now they're turning off the press cameras and saying, this is going to be a non-video interview? Well, Well, I mean, that that all of a sudden hits— That's a whole other topic we could talk about, you know, That just hits at the core, doesn't it, though, of— Of the rights of the media, the needs of the media. Well, you know, what we're seeing, and it's especially interesting now, you know, I've just finished some research looking at the Obama era and the Obama era relationship between the news media and specifically photojournalists. And actually, in the Obama era, quite frankly, they shut the news media out a lot. Photojournalists were regularly denied access to the White House. It's become more apparent and sort of more um, readily confrontational 
in the Trump era. But what's interesting is now with the age of social media, presidents are making the argument that and other, you know, politicians, elected leaders are making the argument we put information out via social media so we can speak directly to the mm-hmm. audience. Yeah. The problem, though, is it doesn't go through news media scrutiny and independent verification by the press. And Boy. so for a functioning democracy, we desperately need the news media. It's the news media's role to verify information, to report from more than just one side. And so, yes, we are getting information from – we got information from the Obama White House. You could argue that the Obama White House put out more information than any other presidency to date. But it came straight from the Obama White House. Right. Um, and absolutely, the Trump White House is very much controlling, you know, the journalistic narrative. Well, yeah. And the minute yeah, the minute you're doing something like turning off cameras and allow, doing an interview mm-hmm. without video, it just it seems like you're fighting a weird fight. Yeah. There's something well, fishy. It, we have to go back to, again, we think about, you know, our democracy. Our democracy li- relies on journalists to be watchdog. It relies on journalism bringing us accurate information to the public. You know, this is that social responsibility theory of the press. And then conversely, we have an audience and, you know, public responsibility to stay informed for a functioning democracy. And so it's incredibly, it's a, you know, it's a really challenging time that we're in right now for journalism, you know, political communication, the government and democracy. It really is. And and so we have to stay informed. We kind of have to know how to get out of our bubble. We need to be able to ask for more context around our images. Any other advice that you would give us, just the average, uh, I guess, viewer of these images and, and managing our our intake of the data so that we're doing so more responsibly, more balanced way? Well, I think the most important thing to do is to get your news from a multitude of sources. Again, it's okay to have that go-to source, right? We all have that source that we're comfortable with, maybe that we've grown up with, and that's fine. But we also need to look to other sources of news. And again, maybe it's one story. My students are always so amazed. One of the assignments that I have them do is, you know, pick a news story you're interested in, no matter what the story is, and go read that story from 10 different news outlets and look at how different news outlets reported that exact same story. You can do that same thing with, you know, a story with an image, a story with a data visualization, a narrative, and you'll really get a different impression of that story um, the more news outlets that you look at. So true. Break down the bubble a little bit and – and open your mind while you're at it. We appreciate you, Dr. Nicole Dahman. Thank you for your great work and um, your insights into how much power an image can actually wield. Nicole Dahman, again, is a Ph.D. and associate professor of journalism at the University of Oregon. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back and continue the journey, helping you be the good in the world and even see the good in the world. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the program. This is the show where you get the latest and greatest, and boy, a new Pew Research poll. You know, it might be a little scary here. Uh, Released Monday revealed that a majority of Republicans think that colleges have a negative impact on the country. 58% of Republicans now say that colleges are having a negative effect on the way things are going in the country, while just 36% uh, Um, see that colleges positively affect the country. 
Now, this is a pretty drastic shift from just two years ago in 2015 when the majority of Republicans, 54 percent of them, rated universities' effect as positive. And just 37 percent said that it was negative. So a complete kind of turnaround uh, with the Republicans and the effects that they see uh, colleges and universities having on I, – I, I am assuming this is on our democracy, on our government, on politics. Now, it's interesting too. The younger Republicans still think more positively of colleges' impact rather than the older Republicans. So it's the older Republicans that are actually becoming more negative about – college and universities, which is weird to me because I would think all these students that are at the universities would be thinking more negatively about the impact of the university. Well, maybe, you know, you get up there in age and you realize I never did anything with my college degree. Look at me. Where did it get me? And I guess maybe these are the people, too, that listen to certain shows and stations that might talk about how liberal the universities are, how liberal the media, how, you know, it's all about liberalism. It's all about – and interestingly, the Democrats, on the other hand, listen to this, overwhelmingly view college's impact on our democracy as positive. 72 percent say that colleges are good for the country, while just 19 percent say they're bad. Well, yeah, because they don't have to pay for it. Ah, Isn't that their agenda, to make college free? Probably is, especially – and it's happening in, I think, well, one, I think New York proposed it, but I don't know if it's going anywhere. Hmm. Speaking of free, today are you a very special day? Are you are you going to go before I announce it? Are you are you in or not? Oh, I've already gone. You've already gone. I've already gone twice. <laughs> that was my breakfast. Today is Seven Eleven Day, folks, which means today you get a free Slurpee. Forget colleges and the impact they're having. Let's talk about the impact Seven Eleven is having on this country. What's very your favorite positive. flavor? Oh. I like uh, I like cherry. Oh, wild yeah, the cherry. wild cherry. Ah, so good. And if you mix it with like a Coca Cola one, then it's Ooh. like having a cherry Coke. You know, for a limited time, they had a diet cherry Coke <gasps> flavor. Really? It was there for like a week. Yeah. It was almost like there was a fairy there, and I caught it in the moment. Oh yeah. And then when I brought my friends back and tried to tell them, no, it's right. It was, it was dead. gone. Yeah, it was dead. It's like you caught the fairy, you shoved it in your pocket, and it, it more likely it my asphyxiated. Mouth. Yeah, yeah, it was tasty. I when I was down with my illness, surgery, gallbladder issue, that's all I had were these awesome little incredible slurpees. They're my best friends. I love them. I love them. It's probably going to be a line, so be patient. But get in there. Be patient. It's it's Seven Eleven Day. It's easy to remember because it's just 7-Eleven day. Thank heaven. Thank heaven for 7-Eleven. A little commercial there for for the greatest Slurpee capital on the earth. We will take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Hope you're ready for another great day as you uh, 
are out and about. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your life coach, your guide on the side. You know, we're all born into this great world, and yet uh, many of us, you know, we don't have access to the latest tools, information, the things we need to make better life choices. So we bring it to you every day, Monday through Friday, 9 to noon, uh, to help you along. We're here. We'll laugh a little bit. We'll uh, give you the latest and greatest research. Today, by the way, we're going to be talking about the state of the U.S. forests, which is a big deal. Apparently, a lot of them are burning right now. They're on fire. But which is, that's just what we do in July. In July, yeah. we just burn everything. That's nature's way of, uh, you know, taking care of itself. All those hotshot firefighters, the guys mm-hmm. they drop into those terrible situations. Hotshot are their names. They're, yes, they're not, not a description yeah, of we're who not they are. disparaging them. That's what yeah. they're termed as. But what are they going to do all summer? Right. This is it. Fight, slide down cough. the pole. Forest, you ever slid down that pole? It's a lot of oh, fun. Yeah. It's tons of fun. Forest fires are nature's loofah. Well, unless there's some guy with a blowtorch who just decides to set a fire. Yeah, then there's which, that guy. Which the, happened. The so. guy walking around with the blowtorch yeah. starting little fires. Oops. <sighs> the state of U.S. forests. By the way, I did not know that uh, a lot of our forests, a high percentage of our forests, are privately owned. Owned by families. Oh, wow. Did you know that? No. What are they doing with it? They're, they're, they're like foresting. Swiss they're Family taking Robinson down or? trees and they produce hundreds of billions of dollars of goods. Lumber. Lumber. They employ a lot of people. That's why that pole is there, too, because they've got kids that, you know, want to slide down. Yeah. Yeah. But this is wood. Wood's harder to slide down. I think I'm really in the mood to slide down a pole. I you know, know what? I keep bringing uh, it up. Having just visited, not just, but about a year ago visiting a fire station, they don't let you slide down the pole anymore. What? Uh, I'm sure a bunch of kids blew their ankles out and, uh, you know, on little retreats and the fire department's now saying we're not doing that anymore. The, the fire <laughs> department, they'll slide down the pole. But the rest of you take the stairs. That's some, just some selfish. Some don't have a pole. That's selfish. Yeah, totally selfish. That's our taxpayer dollars. Speaking of uh, selfish, um, I went to the Osmonds last night. Donnie and Marie. Aww. They they've still got it. Really? It was really an awesome show. Hmm. Uh, what, what did you say? Hmm. Just general. Hmm. Well, you should say like, tell me about it. It's fantastic. Oh, oh, please go on. I, I don't want to get in the way. Fifty-five years. Story. These two have been going at it. Okay. 55 years. Uh-huh. Andy Williams show. Right. 55 years of a little bit country and a little bit rock and roll. May explain my tepid response. Yeah. Like, hmm. It was, honestly, it was really good. And can I just say? I've been to a Donnie Marie and the entire family concert. Have you? Yeah, my response was, huh. No, it was awesome. And they sang all of these really cool current pop hit songs. Come on, you were mesmerized by his they, locks. They said, "Look at those locks." Is this Marie? Is this nope. auto-tuned? That's Donnie. That's Is this just a Donnie chipmunk at version age of this 10 song. Ten or twelve, fourteen. But honestly, they sang this, and I'm telling you, when he started singing this, a thousand women just oh, started screaming. Women, women of a certain age. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes, I mean, absolutely. crazy! Like yeah. they were screaming. Wonder what kind of hair product he uses. I don't know, but he, he's got great volume. No, but Donny Osmond is in great shape. Holy cow! Because right. they they were this was like their Vegas show mm. on the road, and they were dancing like crazy. Except, I think our altitude got to him and the heat because he was outside. Hot and humid a little. And they're yesterday. wearing he's like wearing a suit. So, yeah. but boy, he's he's in great shape. So she she they're in great shape. Okay. I just want I'm just putting that out there that if if you haven't been on the Donny Osmond Marie Osmond. You know, bandwagon lately. You got to get on. Ever, honestly, cool thing. Uh, we sat behind 
we were on the grass, so mm. you could just lay. It was down. a grassy knoll. If you was, will. We were on the grassy knoll. Yeah. But the Osmond grandkid, his grandkids were there. His son was there, and it's really cool to see the grandkids watch their grandpa. It's amazing. The kids were dancing, and they knew all the songs. They knew the words. By the Super way, cool. this is still Donnie, not Marie. Still Donnie. He's hitting those high notes pretty well, though. Not, yeah. Not the chipmunks. Honestly, it was a great show. So check them out in Vegas. They're in Vegas. They're one of the top shows in Vegas. Usually just drive through Vegas. Yeah, you just could have. I'll, well, I'll look at his billboard, though. No, but you'll stop. You'll want to stop for that. Family family fun. You family can't really, entertainment. can't really stop on the freeway, though. It's dangerous. Well, no, you get but. off. Get out yeah. of here. So uh, we'll be talking everything from Forrest to Osmonds, of course. Oh, there's more Osmonds? Well, I got... Well, there are a lot I'll of have, Osmonds. I'll have a lot well, of stories. Several they, talk, they, they got in a really interesting feud about Dancing with the Stars. A feud? Donnie put uh, Marie down because Ooh. she came in second on Dancing with the Stars. Mm. He came in first place. Oh, well, hey. And then she her retort was, well, yeah, but men in Dancing with the Stars, men do very little dancing. Mm. They kind of just hold the woman's waist while the women do all the dancing. Oh, wow. There are a lot more It was more a big Osmonds. battle. They, was they, a really, battle. they really got down to the details yeah. there. Oh, yeah. and then she talked about what happened to Donnie on Dancing with the Stars. Oh. He pulled a muscle, and he needed surgery. Ooh. Oh, wow. And the muscle was in his gluteus maximus. Con- or it was actually his gluteus minimus. It's a contact sport. Yeah. Was Pete there? Pete Osmond? Or Dave? Uh... How about Tito? Was Shep? Tito there? Tito was there, yeah. Shep Tito, Tito's the I think Tito's the most popular Osmond. And then there's LaToya. Mm-hmm. LaToya Osmond. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wait, now we're blending families. And then Jimmy. I think Jimmy, Jimmy was cleaning up after. All right. It was pretty cool. Good stuff. Uh, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? A U.S. judge on Tuesday ruled that the government cannot immediately deport nearly 200 Iraqi immigrants last uh, arrested last month who argued that they would face persecution if they were removed from the country. U.S. District Judge Mark Goldsmith in Michigan said that uh, he had the authority to order the government to keep the Iraqis in country while their deportation cases were reviewed by the courts. In his ruling, Goldsmith said sending the Iraqis back now would expose them to a substantial risk of death, torture, or other grave persecution before their legal claims can be tested in court. Many of the 199 Iraqis detained, largely in Detroit, but also in Tennessee, New Mexico, and California, were Chaldean Catholics and Iraqi Kurds. Both groups said they could be attacked for their... Uh, because they are visible minorities in that country. Not, wow. Not necessarily popular in the I mean, country, they, need, so. they need to get out. Yeah. And so we're pushing them back. That's hmm. on, on hold until they can figure out that. The United States, has, for the first time, successfully carried out an intermediate-range missile intercept test using the thermal... Or no, anyway, the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense System, known as THAAD. THAAD! The horrible name for a missile defense system. I think that's another, so, another Osman, awesome. awesome. too. It's another Osman, yeah. U.S. Missile Defense Agency uh, uh, carried out the test. The intermediate-range uh, ballistic missile target was launched by a U.S. Air Force C-17 aircraft over the Pacific. Mm. The THAAD system shot it out of the sky. It was located at a Kodiak, Alaska, if you were wondering where there our missile systems are. I don't know if we need to put that in the media. This test marks the 14th successful test. That system is currently deployed in South Korea, and of course, North Korea is launching missiles every couple days. Yeah, right. So now we have... Missile update. 
We have bullets shooting out bullets at high altitude. Do, you, do they have to make up an acronym for everything? But <laughs> bad. Yeah. Thanks, guys. If uh, they can agree who goes first, Paris and Los Angeles will be awarded the 2024 and 2028 Olympics. Hmm. International Olympic Committee members voted unanimously to seek a consensus three-way deal between the two bid cities and the IOC executive board. Uh, the talks will open in Paris, widely seen as the favorite for the 2024. If a deal falls through, only the 2024 hosting rights will be voted on when the IOC meets in September in Peru. However, an agreement seemed assured by the reaction of the two mayors. Eric Garcetti of L.A. and Anne Hidalgo of Paris emerged on stage holding hands to welcome the decision. A deal is also likely because head-to-head fight for the 2024 would create a loser that is unlikely to return four years later for oh. 2028. So the Olympics wants to secure both. Then they have a decade of stability yeah. moving forward. And they don't want any sore losers, the ones that don't return. Right. Mm-hmm. So we'll see if Los Angeles gets the Olympics okay. again. Uh, J.P. Nadu might not be the might not be the luckiest man alive but he can certainly give an electrifying speech as it says the canadian was speaking at his daughter's wedding in an apple orchard in woodstock new brunswick waiting for the apple there we go on saturday when he was struck he was struck by lightning so he's giving a speech at his daughter's wedding and he gets hit by lightning oh wow the father got the groom uh what well, the father of the groom got up and said something and then he it was my turn to do said i got my mic from him and i said adam you are some lucky guy as soon as i did that my daughter's eyes just popped out of her head because all of a sudden there was a lightning flash that hit right behind me the power went through the mic cord and it was oh, like boy. i had a bolt of lightning in my hand uh, he says, I felt the current go right through me, but it was it was my hand, and I, I was worried about because I'm a piano man. He goes, I want to keep playing. I don't care if I die, but I want to play the piano. <laughs> so That's mo- cool. Moments after the lightning strike, heavy downpour started. Guests ran for shelter. He was, the, uh, the father was shaken up and uninjured, part of his scorch mark on his thumb from where I guess he was holding the microphone yeah. and... Um, says the rest of the day went smoothly. People coming up to me wondering while I was still alive. Asked whether he could, uh, he thought he could have been a sign from above. Yeah. He Zeus. says there's a rumor that goes around that if rain or thunder on your wedding day, it's a good sign. That is really? crazy. Lightning strike. Well, I don't think lightning striking your father on your wedding day is a good sign. But he lives, so that's a good sign. I think Alanis Morissette yeah. said that too. Really? It's like rain on your wedding day. Did she say anything about lightning? It's like the good advice you just can't take. Hmm. Hmm. You're going to keep going? That's a whole song. No, because nothing in that song is really ironic. No, everything's <laughs> just sort of... As the name of the song suggests. Um, wasn't it Zeus that threw thunderbolts? Yeah. Lightning bolts? Uh-huh. Yeah. And in some way, the Flash. Yeah. He can toss some energy. Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah. But Zeus is a father. So is the Flash. Oh, is he? Yeah. Oh, he's, he had he's, been around, he's been around forever. He says. Well, I didn't kids. know. Yeah, I didn't know he I, had it, kids. It depends on which timeline he hasn't yeah. manipulated yet, because he can move through parallel universes. Never mind. It's a whole thing. Yeah, it is. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. Hey, good news. Uh, if you were worried that Amelia Earhart's plane didn't crash, nope. Because of that picture that there was a picture oh, that yeah, came yeah. out. Right, and they. But and, you said if I was worried, I really wasn't worried. I, I pretty much assume it crashed. It, it doesn't worry you. You know, I'm, I'm assuming it crashed. You're talking about this photo. Yeah. That's now been discredited. Well, it's now blunder. been discredited. She Because this photo came out and then they were starting to think that, boy, maybe she had actually survived her crash and then the Japanese maybe had taken her. 
um, or some other story. But that the mystery photo that seemed to show her sitting on a dock with uh, her navigator. Sitting on a dock of a bay, probably. Sitting on the dock of a bay. Um, You're not going to sing it? Come on. Come on. No. No? No. Uh, not, not after watching the Osmonds. Really? You can't you live can't up to that level. That. It was like, so back to this photo. Um, apparently the photo had been taken like eight years earlier, I believe. Yeah. And, uh, you know, doesn't really relate to the story. I mean, not – we still don't know. We still don't know where so she went. So it was just a hoax. It, well – no, it's the, a real picture. It's just it was a misunderstanding the, of the dates. The Japanese blogger said he, he saw the photo and they immediately grabbed the book that I think he owns and went, "No, the photo's right here." Oh, and it here's was two the years date, earlier. The right? f- picture was taken two years earlier and was put in a Japanese coffee table book. Yeah, so the guy's like, "Why, why wouldn't something like the History Channel, which purports to have all these historians that are helping them put these yeah. this TV special together, why wouldn't they have?" found this he goes i found it it wasn't that hard well because it's it's there's there's some value today in fake news right i mean it's exciting it, it is i mean think about this this story got play oh yeah was on every station everyone talked about it and uh it was wrong i imagine everyone talked about it and nobody watched the tv show and mm-hmm. now we're all aha that's right see that's the difference with this show this show we don't promise to be accurate no we don't even pretend we just read stuff and go, huh. We Our goal is always to be first on the scene, fifth on the facts. The MT News Team. First on the scene, fifth on facts. What's with the apple all the time? Yeah. It's like an apple a day. And it's really crunchy. It's a very Sounds delicious. Crisp. Yeah, you, 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 mm. you think like, you think maybe it would spoil after a while? I mean, we're, yeah. we're biting the same apple. No, it's a different apple. Is it a different yeah. apple? Where are they getting these it, apples? It's only one bite. Washington State. Occasionally you run into a mealy apple. Kind of gross. <laughs> it's actually only one bite per apple. I think apple. every time we say that word, he pushes the button. Nice. Don't say the word. You, you said that word, he reached for the button, and, I know I and he pulled back. Because he, like, well, he thought I was going to say the word, but right. I'm not, not going to say the word apple. So after your Osmond experience, what is your... Main sort of theme takeaway. What did okay. you learn from oh, the evening? Oh, it's very simple. Yeah. Um, have a lot of children. Okay. Mm-hmm. And get them singing. Right. And promote the crud out of them. Huh. So the Kardashian approach. Well, except with talent. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Know forgot, what I mean? I don't mean the that in a rude part. way. Well, it, they kind of came across that way. And I, it might be deserving depending they, on – I mean, but the, I'm telling you. In fact, I was looking at – it's got to be hard to be like an Osmond child mm. that loves music. Like these little grandkids that were just dancing and having so much fun. Right. But I don't know that you'll ever honestly beat the level of success as Donnie and Marie. And wherever They're you huge. go, wherever you go, people want you to sing. Oh, you're an Osmond, sing. Yeah. <sighs> sing and dance, Osmond What if you're boy? the Osmond that can't carry a tune? Well, they have those too. But then you become stage crew. So, did they have their real estate uh, opener? No, no. No. Honestly, the funny thing about it is they showed every star that they've performed with, and you would be blown away. Everybody. Sinatra, Elvis. No. Um, Elvis? Like, was it Groucho Marx? Really? Honestly, everybody. He was, he was still Lucille alive Ball. when they got around? Yeah. Oh, my they've, goodness. They've been at it 55 years. Wow. It's huge. I mean, all the way up to today's biggest stars, Celine Dion, but even bigger, Beyonce, 
I'm telling you. Whoa. Legit. So the, the, all those people were there last night at the concert. And our friend, the governor of Utah, Gary Herbert, made it Donnie and Marie Day. I'm telling you. It so, was huge. Man, what a lineup at that concert yeah, last totally. night. And it wasn't even that warm. I thought I was going to sweat my you know head out, but I, I didn't. I did take a little nap. During I, this song? I, no, this... No. You can't sleep during this song. This is their... This is the song. Mm. And Paper Roses. She sang her song Paper Roses. Oh, boy. That just, you just melt with that one. Anyway, a little Donnie and Marie update for you. And his Purple Socks. He talked about that. That happens to be his least favorite song. The one that made his socks famous. Anyway. Little uh, trivia for you. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. When we come back, we're talking about the state of the U.S. forests. We'll be back. Stick with us. Utah's Bryan Head Forest Fire, once the biggest in the country, burned over 72,000 acres of land and forest. Currently, crews are still wrapping up and working on containment lines. This brings the question, how much value do U.S. forests actually contribute to the country? Here to speak with us today is Dr. D. Thomas Straka, a professor of forestry at Clemson University in South Carolina. Dr. Straka, thank you so much for your time today. I'm glad to be there. I appreciate the invitation. You bet. Now, talk to us about, I mean, I don't think most of us even know, you know, what's the difference between, like, you know, uh, the the U.S. Forest Service, who owns the forests, do all of the forest system belong to the citizens of the United States? Maybe just educate us a bit about the Forestry Service, I mean, or the U.S. Forest System. Well, uh, who owns the forest? Uh, it's the U.S. It's usually called the USDA Forest Service because it's the Department of Agriculture, and they own about 20 percent of wow. the national forest. In other words, uh, of both the forest. And let me give you two definitions to start with. I won't have many. Uh, I want to be talking about forest land, and that's just trees. Uh, trees are growing on land and timberland. Those are trees that are growing that you can make products out of. Okay. And there's a difference. There's about one-third of the United States land area is forest land, and about a quarter is timberland. A little, no less, you would think, because that's the better land. Hmm. And the difference is Utah's a good example. When you're riding along and you see that juniper and, and uh, pinion pine, uh, that isn't big enough to make lumber. A lot, a lot, of, a lot yeah. of it is. That's the difference. Okay. It's still forest land, but that's not timberland. So timberland would just be the really tall trees that they could harvest and and make products out of. In general. Okay. That's a, that's a fair definition. Okay. Um, so if I use those terms, I, 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 they're not interchangeable. Yeah. Yeah. You're actually saying timberland would be product driving. Forest land is, is, is land, property. That's right. That's right. Um, uh, actually, looking at trying to get my figures here in front of me, uh, I said the Forest Service owns twenty uh, percent of, of both, approximately. Uh, the um, you started with a question I'm not ready for. <laughs> That's okay. okay. But so twenty so percent because I, this is the big thing. While you're looking for your numbers, that I didn't understand, a lot of I guess forest and timberland is owned by private enterprise, private companies and families. Sixty uh, percent. Wow. Uh, I mean, it's it's uh, uh, 
it's it's surprising. One of the big differences is is uh, private versus public. You hit hit on one of the main issues. I think the two big issues are east versus west, and then uh, the the public versus the private. Mm-hmm. We um, we we talk a lot about the east west battle because a lot of the times in the west when we hear about wild uh, wild what do they call them wild lands or um, uh, just government owned property and lands, a lot of the West is frustrated because so much of the West is owned by the federal government. Uh, that's public versus private. Yeah. Uh, most of the, you know, you got forest in the East. And when I talk about the East, I'm talking about mainly the Northeast, the Lake States, and the South. Okay. Then you got the Great Plains in between, and the rest I'll call the West. And the West, I'll kind of lump in the Rocky Mountains and, and the Pacific Northwest. That's okay. where most of the trees are. And you, you, those two differences, east versus west, are a big one, and private versus public. Those, those are the the, the two main ones. Uh, looking at, I got some figures in front of me now. The uh, I mentioned. There's, I'll just give you a couple of real quick figures. There's about 766 million acres of forest land and about 500 million acres of timberland, mm. and there's roughly two and a quarter billion acres in the United States. So the forest, I said, is about a third of the land area, and timberland is about 23%. Wow, yeah. So so roughly a, a third and a quarter. And you can divide it in the regions that that uh, 55% of that's in the east and 45% in the west. Hmm. Not, not half and half, but... Yeah. And then you can go between, I won't go between regions and all, all that, but... Um, it can be deceptive, though, that, you know, that when you look at forest land or timberland, it's a little bit different. Uh, you look at uh, there's a lot of timberland just in certain areas of the country. Pacific Northwest, the south, is kind of the wood basket of the country. Um, so getting back to uh, going back to my ownerships, Cause, who owns it? Because I guess, and this is while you're looking at that, this is this is big business, right? This is producing hundreds of billions of dollars of of value for the country. Yeah. Um, in terms of, of economics, um, we're jumping around on figures, and I got them in front of me. But it's it's 40, in 47 states, uh, you'll find that, that forestry uh, timber is one of the top 10 manufacturing sectors. People don't realize no. you know, it's a biggie. Um, it's uh, just got a huge, huge economic impact uh let's see here i got the figures but i'll use south carolina as an example yeah uh in our state it's it's 21 billions a billion dollars uh the forestry commission just just analyzed the uh the industry independent how you rank them do you throw in pulp and paper and lumber and do you throw in furniture part of the wood uh, of course, they were aggressive trying to make forestry look good. It came out number one. Hmm. I, I don't know if that's fair, cause, but it compares very favorably with, with uh, automobiles and plastics. And so it, it's right up there. And if you want to get tricky with the definitions, uh, you can you can uh, make forestry number one in South Carolina. Hmm. It's uh, amazing. It, it's huge. No matter, you know, you get into some, Kansas doesn't have a big forest products industry. Right. In- Oregon, Washington, South Carolina. Maine, places like that. 
it, it's huge. In and your article, it's a huge part of the country. In your article um, on in the conversation, you you stated that the forest products industry manufactures more than two hundred billion dollars worth of products yearly. I mean, this is why this is such an important resource to to be protecting and to be paying attention to. But what? So we have the east kind of the versus the west. We have the the privately owned versus the publicly owned. What are the big issues that the for these these different issues that these different? Uh, I guess the the um, the competition between east west, the competition between private public. What are the issues that those bring up? Well. You're right that East versus the West comes into uh, the different kinds of kinds of timber. Actually, in terms of regulation, you know, the, the South is is pretty open, very receptive to forest industry. Some of the other parts of the country aren't as receptive. Uh, California, uh, it 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 does make a difference where the lands are. But when the big difference is uh, the forests are divided between the East and the West. And most of the public forests are in the west. Most of the private forests are in the east. And if you look at where the, the timber comes from, then, that comes from the, from the east because that's private. Hmm. And, and what's happened, I can go back and, and I've got a chart in front of me. There was a lot of timber produced in the, in the west in the 60s up to the 70s. And the environmental movement came in, and justifiably there were some huge issues clear cutting. I, yeah. It was in forestry and the bitter root in in uh, and then west in the in, in West Virginia forest, the national forest, and justifiably the public got a pretty bad view of clear cutting. Uh, the environmentalists managed to get forest management on the national forest pretty much curtailed, and it's. Uh, so now, when you start looking between the two, the fact that there's a lot of public land in the West means timber production has gone way down. You can go to a lot of towns. You're probably familiar with If you know anything yeah. about it, there were a lot of timber towns, towns. in the West. Yeah, going out of business. Forks, Washington. I, I, I went there one time on a vacation, just happened to be there. Decimated. Hmm. Uh, that's because they, they stopped timber production off, off surrounding lands. Uh, so a big difference in the West is... Uh, Due to environmental pressure, uh, some a lot of it justified. Uh, the forest management, the timber harvesting went down, and that contributed. I'm going to back up to your wildfires. Yeah. Uh, the wildfires. Part of the problem is there's a huge amount of, of biomass. I'll just use a general term. Uh, just a lot of wood out there that can burn, and there's two big reasons I think. One is, and we can fault the Forest Service. There were huge fires about 100 years ago. Huge. Uh, even I mean bigger than today, yeah, and and killed some people and 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 the Forest Service adopted a policy of uh, put it out as quick as you can, you know, that you know it's Smoky Bear, right, and the fire towers, and that was probably a bad policy because uh, that that let it that let the growing stock the biomass accumulate a lot of underbrush a huge amount of underbrush, and so you've got. I call it poor forest management, just letting that happen, because the natural process is for those forests to burn. They've always burned. And if you get them, well, you don't let the biomass get to be at the levels they're at now, they don't burn that hot, and they're not that dangerous. And the other thing is the curtailed forest management. If you have the clear-cutting, not even clear-cutting, just cutting the stands, that's taking timber volume out. Well-managed forest stands don't tend to burn. So we've got poorly managed stands because of the shift in the public sentiment, uh, public pressure, environmental oh, pressure to stop the harvest. So that between the two factors, you've got a huge amount of 
biomass out there, and it burns. But see, and I, in Utah, you just got done talking about No, absolutely. And I didn't even – and maybe it's biased, but you do hear of more like fire, forest fires in the west than it sounds – than it seems like I hear in the northeast. Um, well, like, think uh, back. Is that, and then is that because – I'm is, sure you're aware of it, Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Yeah. You remember that? Yeah. Uh, there were – I think uh, there are thousands of homes and businesses burned. Yeah. I think – I don't have it in front of me. Fourteen lives, I'm going to say. Lives lost. Mm. And what is that close to? Gatlinburg's close to the Great Smoky National Park. And that's – the national parks are different than the national forests. The national – this is historical. Historically, the national forest – I'm going to back up to a question you kind of you almost asked. The National Forest during the Department of Agriculture. Uh, the Parks and the, and the BLM are in the Department of Interior. And, and you, you should be thinking right now, well, why is that? Mm-hmm. Why, why aren't they all in the same place? Right. And they're natural resources. Way back, Theodore Roosevelt and Gifford Pinchot, the first chief of the Forest Service, with that title anyhow, uh, they – got it in the Department of Agriculture because forests back then were closer to egg product, uh, uh, production. Hmm. Uh, you're growing a product. Uh, they did a lot of management. They still do uh, helping the private landowners, but they looked at that as being producing a crop. And Congress gave them their marching orders back then, uh, and they supported themselves. They didn't need a budget. They actually put money back in the Treasury. It's, it'd be very easy for the Forest Service to pay all the cost and put money back in the Treasury if they were managing the forest the way they were originally intended to be. The national parks are preserved. There's no timber cutting on the national right. parks. So they're, they're amassing some of these great volumes. And that was what was amassed right next to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. So it can happen. In, it does happen in the east, in Florida, okay, yeah. and, and it's not just a, it's mainly a western problem. But it really it's not is just a western problem. So, so there is, there's a there's an interesting um, issue going on where because of situational, uh, I mean, because of certain um, values and cultural, uh, environmental policies, we may we're, we're probably not we're not cutting so we have more biomass accumulating which then sets up the more fuel for the fire is is who's is are things changing as far as forest management goes are we are we now managing it differently seeing that this is happening or are we just waiting for more fires to take place uh there's there's uh they're asking for money in the budget they have been uh, restorative, restorative management, uh, going out and, and taking some of the high-risk stands and actually doing cutting. The environmentalists don't like it because they look at it, they say that's an excuse to do timber harvesting. You're just trying to hmm. evade the issue. I don't think that's the case. But but they're asking for money in, in the budget to take some of the most critical stands and actually go out and harvest timber, and not for the sense of it will produce timber for, for lumber mills. I mean, I mean but, but that's not the intent. The intent is to get the biomass down. And even I'm surprised Donald Trump, well, not, not really. Donald Trump cut money out of that in his budget. Right. Uh, and the reason was, and I think he has a good point. He said, I'll give you some money. I'm not going to cut it all out. But the Forest Service is going overboard. I'm, I'm, giving, I'm giving you kind of my impression of what, what, what they're saying between the lines. Yeah. Uh, he said, you've got plenty of money to do the high-risk areas, and that's where you ought to be cutting. And there's a philosophy of let it burn. They're, they're moving closer to that and, and trying to decide there are some places you can just let burn. 
um, say it's a wilderness area and there's nothing nearby. Right. It's going to reduce the biomass. And, and what Trump said uh, is maybe I give you plenty of money and you get to high-risk areas, and I'm not going to give you money to get to backwoods. You just leave that burn. Mm. And it, maybe that, maybe that's a good argument. Yeah. Uh, and the problem, really, if you look out, you can see it in the news, uh, I'm sure in Utah, it's called the Wildland Urban Interface. And that's the people building houses and subdivisions right next to the forest. Right. That didn't used to be out there. And there's always been in wildfire management uh, a priority of saving people first and then buildings and then the forest. Right. That, that was just, that's just a Seems rule. Seems like a right, the healthy it's order. A rule. Right. And if you got all of a sudden when you got all this urban uh, wildlife urban interface building against the forest, the, the Forest Service is spending all their money right there at that at the interface as opposed to being inside the forest. It's becoming a bigger, bigger problem. Oh, interesting. They're protecting houses that maybe shouldn't be there in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they needed to just stop the building uh, so they can they don't have to make these decisions. We're uh, talking with Professor Tom Straka about the state of the U.S. forest. We'll be back. Continue the discussion in just a minute. Welcome back. We are talking uh, with Professor Tom Straka, and he is a, a professor of forestry at Clemson University in South Carolina. He's been walking through an article he wrote titled The State of U.S. Forests, uh, Six Questions That He's Answering, and really he's giving us Forestry 101. It's almost like we're getting a scout merit badge here, Tom. Well, I got a couple figures that you asked earlier. Yeah. Can I give me a chance to look them up? The federal government owns about three-quarters of the public lands. And state governments, about 20, and then uh, county and locals, uh, the rest of it. And the Forest Service is the largest federal agency in the USDA. I'll just give you a huh. six, $6 million budget, 35,000 employees, 193 million acres. You've got to be careful of that because they also manage grasslands. I think it's close to 150 of, of forest land. Uh, it's equivalent to the size of Texas, spread over 44 states in Puerto Rico. Holy cow. And... In terms of uh, federal forest land, uh, the Forest Service uh, has 61%, and the BLM, I think everybody out, uh, everybody in Utah knows what BLM is. Yeah, we hear about the BLM all the time. What percent and, do and they federal, own? Federal timber land, they own 88% of the public now, and the BLM is 6 which okay. makes sense. Yeah. The Forest Service has got the good stuff. Yeah. That's 94% uh, between the two. So the Forest Service controls most of the public timber land. And I'll just give you one more statistic that happens to be on this page. In 1987, the National Forest supplied 17% of the timber harvest in the country. Today, it's 3%. Wow. That's the difference. Yeah, there's the difference. It's the private, then, that's taking off, I guess? Pardon me? Is it the private side that's producing more of it, then? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the private's picked it up. Uh, there's, there's no problem with the private. Uh, it's... Matter of fact, private can produce a lot more on, on, on less land. The, the uh, genetics that are involved now, uh, a lot of the land used to be owned by forest industry is not owned anymore by forest industry. But investors picked it up, and they manage it. They're capital intensive. And they put super seedlings in genetically superior trees. Hmm. And they're growing a lot more wood on less land. Is it? So there's a huge potential. Matter of fact, 
I think the intensively managed land, you might the environmentalist or criticize that land, but it's producing so much wood that there's there's slack in the system for conservation groups to come in and, and buy land and conserve it. Really? So, so the private sector is doing a really good job of picking up the slack. But the people that had, there were mills in the West in particular that were located near national forests that they're not there anymore. Right. That, that, that depended on a, a steady supply of wood off the national forest. Well, and this is this is jobs, right? These are jobs. This is this well, is real these are real people. So when we think about trying to create more jobs, um, if a lot of the private company or the, a lot of the land that's held privately in the East is making most of the money, then really, I guess the West has more has been choked out. I guess more by environmental policy. Exactly. Uh, what what happened was uh, a change in philosophy of. Of back at the beginning, I said uh, the national forests were production forests. They produced timber, and they produced a surplus that went into the treasury. Hmm. Uh, then environmental pressure in the '60s, and I said justified. Uh, to, I think it went overboard afterwards, but there were some big issues. The clear cutting issue uh, was pretty severe. And what happened was, I'll tell you, it's sort of like the, the wildfires. Uh, what happened was, uh, since the clear cutting was driving the budgets. The Forest Service is a normal organization. If something's driving your budget, yeah. what do you do with it? Yeah. More and more of it. You feed and it. And it kind of went overboard. And, and the environmental state had, had, had an axe to grind, and it was a good one. But to be honest with you, with the wildfires, over half the Forest Service budget now is wildfires. So what do you think is driving the Forest Service? Yeah. Uh, more, and they're trying to get more and more money, and, and they're going to spend it. They don't want more wildfires, but they're going to spend that money. Uh, and there's expensive things. You see the, I'm sure you, you must have a lot of it on television where you're at. Uh, you see these big tankers dropping the yeah. chemicals. That's super, super expensive, and well, that's necessary. But that's the kind of stuff you can have when you got a big budget. So part of what's driving the Forest Service right now are wildfire budgets. Hmm. I mean, they don't like wildfires, but they sure like the money. Yeah, and they need and, the money, and, and they got to get it in somehow. And it's a special kind of money. Even Donald Trump cut the Forest Service back quite a bit. But what do you think he left alone? Wildfires. Wildfires. Okay, because that yeah. makes sense. He's not going. He's not going to fool with that. So you've got kind of a safe bet, and that's driving the whole animal right now. Does do, do you see that? I mean, it, it sounds like what you're saying, though, is the private the private companies and or the privately owned forest areas and timberland areas they seem to be really better managed. There's not clear cutting like they used to do, um, but and they're better managed. So, wouldn't it make sense that we turn over more of this property to be sold privately? Well, that's the argument, particularly in Utah. Uh, there's a couple states, and Utah is the most vocal. And you've got a law that was passed, I'm going to say in 2012, uh, that says turn the land over to the states. Yeah. And then everybody's, not everybody, but people say, yeah, and then it gets turned over to the private sector. Uh, and and th- so it's a two-step process. Uh, I'll just go with the state and, and not even say turn it over to the private sector. I can look at states, Washington State's a good example. There's a lot of state-managed land out there. Mm-hmm. It's managed, in my opinion, a lot better than the federal lands. They make, you know, they they pay their own budgets. Uh, it isn't, you no know, recreationists aren't deprived from using it. It's really, really managed well. So there's no question that that the record supports that the states can manage the land really well. Right. Uh, so going back to the 
all the issues that the local newspapers in Utah, there's a lot of people that feel there's everything from constitutional to other issues that Utah should be treated the state the same as the eastern states, not just Utah, all the west, the various western states. Not all of them. Some hmm. of them like the way it is right now, but a lot of them think that land should be turned over and the states could do a better job of managing it. And yeah. I don't think there's any question about that. Right. And but then. Is, there, is it going to have a, a second shift of going private? I don't have any problem with that unless – is the private really going to be timber management or are you moving towards development? Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, so so, you, so there's, it's a double-edged sword to me that, that in general I, – I, I like the idea in general, but I'm not sure if it isn't going to lead to a bad sure. place, a worse place in the long run. Right. Uh, so you got to be careful. What about – I'm not sure where it would lead. What, uh, what about this? I really going to happen. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a prediction. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think there's going to be some kind of has to be a change, and the change is going to be some kind of joint federal uh, and, and states. Uh, excuse me, a joint federal state, and uh, where the states have have a tremendous amount more control and management and, and getting some of the budgets. Huh. I think that would work where you do some kind of joint thing where it's primarily owned by the states with some sort of federal oversight yet, and you're going to have to have that. I think. Because the states don't think it through. Utah hasn't thought it through. Right. Can, can Utah give the land to Utah? That's fine. Do they expect the fire budgets, the federal fire budgets, hmm. to come with it? Right. That, that's what they, they need all the money, yeah. right? Right. Yeah, oh, yeah. So, so you can't have it both ways. Right. If you want the land, you're going to take the entire set of problems, which is a huge, huge amount of, of wildfire budgets you'd have to pay for. I'm not so sure that would work. So I think you're headed towards some kind of a, a joint situation. But... Uh, there's a lot of pressure, and my crystal ball says something along those lines will happen. Hmm. What would you suggest? We've only got a couple minutes, but um, when it comes to just the average citizen who, you know, every once in a while gets to go see a beautiful forest who maybe doesn't necessarily live close to one, um, tell us why we need to pay attention, why they matter, why any of this should matter to the average citizen. Ecosystem services. They're a part of the – I just said they're a third of, of, of the country, of, of the land base. Uh, they, they provide all kinds of services you don't think about. Uh, fundamental ones from you – now, there's carbon being sucked into them and oxygen coming out of them. Right. Uh, you start looking uh, – the key reason they were originally saved, the national forest, wasn't timber uh, – timber production was big, but it wasn't the biggie. The biggie was watersheds. There were tremendous floods after the clear cuts. The people, they weren't even sure how forest hydrology worked, but one thing they were sure about was after you clear cut the forest, particularly in mountainous country, there, were, there was tremendous damage. Soil erosion and, and, and water shed problems uh, were tremendous. Uh, so there's a whole set of ecosystem service, services provided, fundamental ones, if you want to exist, because water and air are really important things. Hmm. Uh, then you're into the other ones, you know, the wildlife, the recreation, uh, the aesthetics, just just the aesthetics. Uh, and then you you can get into bigger problems. The, they have a huge impact on, on climate change, a positive impact on, on climate change. Uh, so you're looking at something that, that is fundamental to, to the entire, just look at the state, the entire state. And then I can get into any state, almost any state you want. Uh, I said in 47 states, they're in the top 10 manufacturing sectors. A huge part of the economy is tied mm. into that. And then that, that, that economy is tied into it because 
most everybody listening probably goes to Home Depot or Lowe's or, or right. And and those those two by fours came from someplace, <laughs> and most of them from the well, a lot of them from the United States. There's imports and exports. We when you when you net it, most of it is, is produced here one way or the other. When we when we trade with somebody, we get a lot back. Uh, it's a huge part of the economy. It's a huge part of the environment, and it's in, in most places around the country. It's a huge part of everybody's everyday life. No, it really is, and especially just in our world. In my own, and I guess it's living in the West is part of the benefit of that too. Is everything you mentioned from uh, recreation, aesthetics, climate change, watersheds, all of these things, boating, all the fun stuff that happens in and around these mountains. Um, and uh, forestry areas, boy, it's, it's great for family, it's great for life, it's great for health. So, Professor Tom Straka, we appreciate you and your work you're doing there at uh, Clemson University, and uh, glad to have you on the show. We'll take a break. Come back. Man, be grateful for all you've been blessed with, including this incredible world. We'll be back. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Play ball. Welcome back, friends. Um, as we, again, just talked about uh, the state of U.S. forests, it, it does get into this issue of management, this issue of leadership. Peter Drucker, one of the great leadership consultants and leadership thinkers, um, uh, taught that management is doing things right Leadership is doing the right things. And as we think about our forest service and our forestries, uh, boy, do we not need to do both, right? We need to make sure we manage them properly, especially when it comes to, you know, cutting the biomass, cleaning out uh, the forest so that it does – we don't need to let them just burn, um, but also using, the, using them effectively, making sure we're protecting some of the natural resources, also making sure we're protected, protecting some of the, you know, critical species that live in that habitat. But I guess also importantly is making sure we're doing the right things. And uh, one of the things I worry about in leadership in general is we have the loudest – voice tends to win the race, not necessarily the most effective policy. And it it scares me a little bit that we, we make a, an environmental decision because some people were clear-cutting and destroying the environment. So then we make a decision that now 30, 40 years later is not proving to pay off anymore as more and more fires take off. And also jobs are being lost and communities destroyed. So we need some leadership, don't we? And where's that going to come from? Well, it'll come from Washington. Well, maybe it won't. Or it'll come from you demanding a higher level of leadership and you yourself getting more involved. So that's one of the reasons we bring you these topics so that you can be informed. And when you're sitting at dinner with your friends, you can make some informed conversation. That's uh, hour number one of the program, folks, here to help you be the good in the world. We'll take a break. We'll be back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. 